Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. It's a free-for-all edition Live Politic Podcast. Woohoo! So the Democratic Party not where the Republican Party was in 2016. No, I don't think so. And I don't think Michael Bloomberg is where Democratic rank-and-file voters are, particularly on economic questions where rank-and-file Democrats have moved to the left of where they were eight or ten years ago. Uh, you know, I think Inslee is an interesting figure. Uh, he's probably going to have trouble breaking through. You know, just isn't that the question for for eighty yeah, percent of the field? <laughs> for a lot of them. But but here's the interesting thing about Inslee, George. I think he could beat Donald Trump very easily. Generic Democrat who you know Fox News hasn't instructed its America to hate and despise for the last several years. He rose years. the polls. Well, I think that most way. people are not yeah. going to oh, yeah. beat Donald Trump pretty easily. I think that's an important. Point about I think the general election. Way, it, I no. don't think that that. I, look, I, I, if, if the election were tomorrow, he would more likely than not lose. But the election is not tomorrow. No, he's different from other Democrats. And, and what's the it, argument? The argument can't be, well, the president isn't a decent person. That can't be the argument. Republicans tried that in the primaries. It did not work against Donald Trump. They have to have an argument. The Democratic Party has moved farther to the left will move farther to the left by the end of this process than the Republican Party moved to the right over the last decade. And the most important and arguably influential Democrat isn't able to run. Uh, Congresswoman, you know, Ocasio-Cortez. And she is the intellectual drive now on the Democratic Party. And we see these candidates falling over themselves to adopt her positions. And it's going to be very good. where most Democratic voters are. But the, 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 where most voters are, are much closer to where the Democrats are than the Republicans are. Mm-hmm. Most voters support doing, dealing with climate change. Healthcare. Most voters support, don't support the wall at the border. Most voters support increased taxes on the very wealthy. So all of these things, the Democrats are much closer to where the country that, is than the Republicans are. That's true are. in a polling context. It's not true when you lay out this policy. And that has got to be the last word today. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we are going to win this election, not because we have a super PAC funded by billionaires. We're going to win this election because we are putting together the strongest grassroots campaign in the history of American politics. Donald Trump wants to divide us up based on the color of our skin, based on where we were born, based on our gender, based on our religion or our sexual orientation. What we are about is doing exactly the opposite. We're going to bring our people together. Black and white, Latino, 
Asian American, Native American, gay and straight, young and old, men and women, native born and immigrant, we are together. And together we will transform this country. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 4th of March year of our Lord 2019. And we're doing a free-for-all segment, as you heard by the cool, cool music. That intro was Matt Dowd saying that the very, very extreme left is more like Americans. They they just... that It's such a great just position because you heard Bernie saying it's Trump separating people by race. I mean, what fucking planet are these people on? And it kind of shows that is an independent in our media. An independent. Matt Dow, and a socialist. We're fucked. Anyway, today's show, Operation Anaconda, I'm going to read an excerpt from the book. Um, I did this podcast ages ago. The interesting thing is, you're going to hear this for the very, very first time in stereo. So uh, Tom in Tucson, a guy we don't talk about a lot, used to do all our voice-ins. Uh, when I did all these, I couldn't get, I didn't know how to use Audacity. And so I was recording stereo but it was mono and then of course you'd have your left ear only so now i i know how to split mono tracks and make them stereo even though every once in a while one gets out wrong and so this is going to be a stereo reading which will be kind of interesting the violent left uh cohen hearing and general media bias tweets of the day news and social media nuggets and always are this is america so i'm going to go straight into this you're going to hear a helicopter bumper which is actual uh, video taken on the way into uh, Operation Anaconda. This is March 2nd, 2002. And a book reading is called Not a Good Day to Die by Sean Naylor. Um, <clears throat> I'm in it briefly, but it really is my platoon, which was uh, second platoon, Charlie Company, 2nd, 187th Infantry, 3rd Brigade, 101st Airborne Division. And this was the biggest fight since Vietnam. They got eclipsed the first time we got in a firefight in uh, Iraq. But it was a big deal at the time. This book is in its eighth printing. And I, you know, a guy who's had to retire from the Army and retire from a career, and I'm pretty much kind of retired because nobody wants to hire me right now because I'm overqualified and I'm 51. These are, and a guy I can't stand, Bruce Springsfield, Bruce Spring. <laughs> Springsteen, let's try to get that out of my mouth. <clears throat> Glory days. Um, I can remember everybody's face. And I can remember it like it was yesterday, but this was 17 years ago. And this was recorded three years ago, uh, give or take a few days. It was recorded on March 2nd, 2016. So, Enjoy. <laughs> In this portion, I wanted to read a book that was actually written by Sean Naylor about the operation, and it's called uh, Not a Good Day to Die, which unfortunately was given, the name was given to him by a person that I will not even name that most of us (laughs) did not like and uh, thought was probably uh, the worst example of an NCO there could possibly be. Um, 
but it was very cool that a book was even written about this operation. But once again, as stated throughout this, you know, this was the beginning of the war, and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff going on, and this was the only show. So I think once we left Afghanistan, you know, the, the, the general feeling was that Afghanistan was over, it was won, there wasn't going to be anything else there, and all we were focusing on was Iraq. The whole world was focusing on Iraq, and let's be honest, there were, you know, the protests had already started. So I think the intent of this author was to capture this as his last final hoorah in Afghanistan to end it and we win and that's of course not what happened but none of us knew that at this time so <clears throat> the reason why the platoon was featured though is because we were the lead bird we were the first bird to go in and you know just by happenstance we met him because he was given access to talk to everybody. And, you know, he came in and did some interviews, and most of us didn't say a whole lot. And then over time, he started putting this book together. And I remember I was back um, because, you know, I didn't, I didn't do the Iraq thing because I was heading to National Training Center. And he calls me, and on my front porch, he's asking me, who is this, and who is this, and who is this? And that's how this prologue was put together. That's how I knew we were going to be in the prologue. So even though my name is in this a few times, it's not. I'm not reading this for the, the benefit of myself. I'm, I'm reading this because my platoon is in it, and there are names in here that I'm going to read because they're open source. You know, this is, this is a book, so I don't feel like I'm messing anybody over by saying their name. And it's still pretty cool to see that, you know, for the rest of the time, even though this mission fell amongst so many other missions that were of greater importance for the battle and the war and more loss of life, etc., it's still my platoon. You know, not mine as in mine, possessively, but this is the platoon I served with, and it's still a, a proud thing to do every once in a while, is just to read this and go, wow, I remember these guys, and... You know, you remember the faces, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to remember the names, and then the name gets put with it. So I'm going to read the prologue. It's a little bit of a long read, um, but it's interesting. <clears throat> and then on the back side, I'll just kind of talk a little bit of my memory. And when we have pod episode 16, I'm hoping that other people will talk about it themselves. So from the book. The first gray fingers of dawn was gripping the mountaintops as the three helicopters hurled between the snow-capped peaks. Packed like sardines inside each of the ungainly Chinooks were over 40 combat-laden soldiers, and the aircraft's twin set of rotor blades wilted visibly under the strain, making a deeper woompa, woompa, woompa sound than normal as they bludgeoned the thin mountain air into submission. Two minutes behind them, another three Chinooks followed the same route, hurling saddles and sweeping through passes. On each helicopter, cramped soldiers sat facing inward and on red nylon seats along the sides of the cabin. A third row sat between them on the floor facing the tail ramp. Wedged among a welter of rucksacks, rifles, mortars, and machine guns, and further constrained by their bulky webbing helmets and body armor, few soldiers could do more than turn their heads a few inches from side to side. The din of the engine made conversation impossible, and many soldiers sheltered under blankets the air crew had handed out as shields against the icy blast blowing in through the open side doors and tail ramp. 
The harsh, jagged terrain of the eastern Afghanistan sped past a couple of hundred feet below, an alien landscape dotted with mud-brick villages little changed since Alexander's hoplites marauded through the region 2,300 years previously. Those soldiers close enough to see out of one of the Chinook's few windows peered down to spy villagers gazing up in awe and astonishment at the war machines thundering overhead. It was as if the sky belonged to a different century than the earth below. A few Pashtun tribesmen hazard a wave at the aircraft. Others pointed and gaped at one woman threw herself back into her home through a window. Such was her haste to escape the scrutiny of the 21st century warriors above her. Sergeant Carl Moore, the lead Chinook's left-door gunner, glanced over his shoulders into the aircraft's interior and saw a sea of faces, most so young they couldn't seem they wouldn't seem out of place crowding a high school corridor. The average age of the men in the back of the helicopters were 20 years old, but these teens and 20-somethings weren't on their way to class, but to a trial by fire at 8,000 feet, nestled in the mountains, valleys, somewhere ahead. Their commanders had told them <clears throat> were hundreds of enemy fighters. It was going to be the job of the soldiers on the helicopter to capture or kill them before they could escape the Pakistan or ferment rebellion against the American-installed government inside Afghanistan. When word of the mission had started to leak out a few days previously, the young Americans were excited. They had grown tired of tedious duty of guarding air bases, which was all of most had all most had done. Excuse me, almost had been doing since they arrived months before in Central Asia. But now they were minutes away from combat. For all but a handful, it would be their first taste of real world action. An intimidation of their own mortality naturally intruded. Moore saw fear on several faces. I didn't see any fear, so Moore's a dick. His counterpart, manning the right door gunner, Sergeant Eddie Wall, also looked back into the aircraft and saw a range of emotions on the young faces. One soldier stared blankly ahead. Another nervously checked and rechecked his weapon and ammo pouches, making sure everything he would need in the fight was instantly accessible. Special, specialist Matthew Edwards, a clean-cut 24-year-old armed with a light machine gun called the Squad Automatic Weapon, or SAW, kept his eyes on the squad leader, Staff Sergeant Chris Harry. As a private in the 75th Ranger Regiment, Harry had parachuted in a fierce firefight at Rio Hato Airfield during the 1989 invasion of Panama. That experience made him the only combat veteran among the infantry in the Chinook. Edwards, a lean, thoughtful soldier with a finance degree from Virginia Tech, tried to take his cue from Harry's demeanor. The squad leader didn't let him down. When Moore and Wall test-fired the M60 machine guns halfway through the flight, several troops glanced up alarmed. But Harry smiled broadly and looked around as if to say, Here we go, boys. Don't be nervous. This is what we train for. Edwards felt a surge of confidence. We're ready for this, he thought. Private First Class Jason Wilson, a rascal-faced 19-year-old Oklahoman, so short and skinny that his platoon sergeant referred to him as an elf, allowed himself to be rocked asleep by the vibration. His saw leaned against, leaned between his knees, barrel pointing down so in case of an accidental discharge, the bullet would shoot harmlessly through the floor, not into the rotor blades turning overhead. Several of Wilson's comrades also dozed fitfully, a common reaction of soldiers flying towards battle. These troops were screaming eagles of the 101st Airborne Division, and their predecessors in that storied unit had slumbered in much the same way in transports, transports that flew across the English Channel in the early hours of June 6, 1944, or more recently when Black Hawk helicopters ferried them into the Battle of 
in, in the 1991 Gulf War. Wilson and his buddies had been in the grade school when the United States and his allies crushed the Republican Guard and the rest of the Iraqi military in that conflict. Since then, the peace dividend, defense cuts of the 1990s, and almost halved the army that drove Saddam Hussein's legion from the field. As training funds dried up and peacekeeping missions proliferated, combat readiness suffered. The private specialists and the buck sergeants and Chinooks swooping through the mountains belonged to what their elders disparagingly referred to as the Nintendo generation. They came of age in an era of internet chat rooms, gangster rap, and grunge. Senior NCOs in the Army that Wilson joined complained that recruits at the turn of the 21st century showed up at basic training softer and less fit than their predecessors. As the United States lamented the passing of the greatest generation that secured victory in World War II, many Americans and many enemies of America questioned whether the, this latest generation of Americans had the stomach for a fight. Not all the passengers aboard the first Chinook bore the stamp of fresh-faced youth. Seated toward the front were Lieutenant Colonel Chip Preissler and Command Sergeant Major Mark Nielsen. Preissler 41, the senior officer on the helicopter and the infantryman's battalion commander, spent the flight glued to his radio monitoring the brigade command net. Nielsen was his wiry sergeant major straight out of, the, out of central casting. Five feet, eight inches, and 169 pounds of weather-beaten rawhide, toughened by 15 years in the Ranger Regiment. Sergeant First Class Anthony Reed, 34, the platoon sergeant of the infantryman on the Chinook, thought the 48-year-old Nielsen looked grizzled enough to have been in the War of 1812, which I caught hell for saying. But like Reed and Preissler, the sergeant major had yet to hear a shot fired in anger. In the cockpit, Chief Warrant Officer 3, Brett Blair, the pilot in command, removed his night vision goggles as the light of dawn spread across the horizon. His adrenaline started pumping in earnest. When they had taken off, the weather brief had been clear blue in 22, aviator talk for perfect flying weather. But now the Chinooks were squeezing through a 100-foot gap between the bank of fog beneath them and the layer of cloud above. Hesitating, the three Chinooks circled as the clouds seemed to close in. Hell. We're going to screw the whole thing up because we can't get in, Blair thought. Then scanning the thin strip of pale sky between the fog and the clouds, he glimpsed a white-capped mountain range in the distance. It was a moment of decision for the 19-year veteran. Blair got on the VHF radio to the other two birds in the serial. Follow me, we're going through, he said. Pulling the thrust, thrust lever up with his left hand while using his right hand to push the cyclic lever, Blair put the Chinook in a rapid right turn. The other helicopters followed suit. They flew on dead east and the skies began to clear. Blair's instincts had been sound. He picked up speed and lost altitude, taking the helicopter down to just 35 feet above the ground, hugging the terrain. About an hour after taking off from Bagram Air Base, he made a final sharp turn to the north as he closed on the valley. The helicopters behind him fell in trail. Now he was just a couple of kilometers from the release point, the predetermined location on which pilots are free to drop their maps because they know that, that by flying in a certain direction for a given amount of time at a certain speed, they will arrive at their landing zones. Over the intercom, Blair told the crew in the back that they were 10 minutes out <clears throat> from the LZ. In a sequence repeated on each of the Chinooks, Moore and Wall turned to the infantrymen closest to them, Ten minutes, they shouted, holding all ten fingers up simultaneously in case the troops couldn't hear above the noise of the engine. The word got passed quickly down the helicopter, each soldier tapping the grunt next to him on the shoulder and repeating the ten minutes, shout, while showing all ten figure, fingers. 
The warning galvanized the troops. Those who had been huddled under bl underneath blankets threw them off. No one was sleeping now. There was a distinct change in the atmosphere aboard the Chinook as the infantrymen's restlessness to escape the cramped confines of the aircraft mingled with their anxiety about what they would encounter on the ground. Soldiers fastened and refastened the straps on their Kevlar helmets and cinched their assault packs a little tighter so they wouldn't lose anything if they had to run. To more, the troops' face reflected the realization that, oh shit, we're really doing this. As if to underline the proximity of the danger, the lingering aroma of high-explosive bombs dropped on suspected Al-Qaeda positions near the LZ a few minutes previously now filled the helicopter. One young soldier looked confused by the acrid smelling smell filling his nostrils. That's just the Air Force doing its job, Nielsen yelled at him. As Blair coaxed and wrestled the helicopter between craggy outcrops, a voice cracked over the radio with alarming news. Special Forces troops knew the valley had come under attack, and a little, little urgent casualty required evacuation by helicopter ASAP. Little urgent, the words resonated in the cockpit of all six Chinooks. It was an anodyne army phrase that referred to a casualty so badly wounded that he had to be evacuated within the hour to stand a chance of survival. This wasn't good. The infantry weren't even on the ground yet, and already a friendly soldier's life was ebbing away somewhere ahead of and below them. It was the first sign anyone on the Chinook had that events weren't going completely to plan. The release point was in a draw just to the east of the ridge line and jutted into the southern end of the valley. Despite the fog, the Chinooks hit the RP right on time. As they flew into the valley, the ground dropped away before them. The pilots began sweeping the train a couple miles ahead with their eyes searching for their LZs. By now, Blair was flying along <coughs> what aviators call nap of the earth, scudding just 15 to 20 feet above the ground at the base of the valley's eastern ridgeline. A few hundred meters to the west lay the mud-covered villages in the center of the valley. To American ears, these villages had odd, exotic-sounding names, Shukankil, Bubankil, and Zerkikal, but the troops knew them simply as Objective Remington. Looking out of his open window across the terraced fields towards the village, Moore swiveled his M-16 machine gun back and forth. These were the most dangerous moments of the flight, his body tense as he watched and waited for the sudden appearance of tracers arching out of the village, or even worse, the small orange fireball of an incoming rocket-propelled grenade. Across the cabin, the part Cherokee, part French-Canadian wall, did likewise searching for any sign of the enemy and the snow and rocks of the mountainside that stretched up for several thousand feet. Here and there, cave mouths appeared and black gashes in the rock face, but there was no sign of life. Nothing, it seemed, was stirring. Maybe, just maybe, the air assault had achieved surprise after all. In fact, there were at least 13 fighters hidden in the crags and crevices up ahead who knew the Chinooks were coming and were eagerly awaiting their arrival. But these men were all America's members of the U.S. military's most elite unit. In the dead of night, they had ridden on all-train vehicles and marched over frozen ridge lines through thigh-deep snow to emerge unseen in the heart of the enemy's last remaining stronghold in Afghanistan. They had already saved the operation from catastrophe once and would do so again in the days ahead. But the few men sitting in the helicopters would never realize the debt they owed these secret secretive athletic warriors who embodied their commander's credo of audacity, audacity, audacity. With five, three, and two minutes to go, the air crew repeated the X-minute out warning. 
each alert ratcheting the tension up another notch inside the helicopter. As the minutes wound down, Captain Frank Balthazar, the troop's popular company commander, insisted on repeating high fives with the soldiers beside him. Specialist Daniel Chapman, the 21-year-old team leader, understood this to be his commander's way of dealing with his nerves. Other soldiers made hasty last-minute adjustments to their equipment. At the three-minute bark, the troops stopped checking their gear and focused their gaze on the rear of the helicopter, each mentally planning his route off the bird and going over in his mind what actions he was supposed to take immediately upon hitting the ground. A few got a kick out of the patch the Chinook crew chief war, Sergeant Mike Cyphers, had velcroed to the back of his helmet. Fun meter, it said, with a little arrow pointing all the way to the right. Maximum fun, yeah, right. At two minutes, Reed barked a simple yet profound order, lock and load. Simple, because it only required the troops to chamber around in their M4 assault rifles, which they each did instantly with a series of metallic kerchunks. Profound, because the order is only given when combat may be imminent. After careful analysis of the maps and satellite photographs, the planners had given Blair an LZ next to a walled compound just north of a gully that ran west into the valley from the eastern ridgeline. But maps of the valley were notoriously unreliable and satellite photos could be deceptive. A couple days previously, the CIA had flown a Russian-made MI-17 helicopter over the area, filming the valley floor. Blair and the other pilots had watched the video, but it still hadn't been clear enough to tell him whether or not the spot picked out for his LZ was really suitable. To minimize the chance of helicopters being shot down, the Chinook pilots were told that under no condition were they to double back and fly south. They were never to fly over the same piece of terrain twice. Therefore, the pilots had agreed with the infantry officers that they would put the troops down at the first sure thing close to their assigned LZs. As Blair approached the compound, he saw a perfect spot about 100 meters south of the gully in a tiny terraced field. 30 seconds, Wall yelled to the soldiers next to him. The Chinook slowed to a hover. Blair put the helicopter in what pilots called its landing attitude, which is nose pointing slightly upward to ensure the rear wheels touch down first. Aircraft clear, he asked over the intercom. It was a job of the three crewmen in the back to check for obstacles or hollows on the LZ that might disrupt the landing. Clear to the left, replied Moore. Clear to the right, yelled Wall. Clear to the rear, shouted Cyphers. With the Chinook facing north towards the compound, Blair slowly lowered the big helicopter to the ground. In the cabin, every infantryman was now wearing his game face, a look of focused determination, and had one arm through the harness of his rucksack, ready to move. As Cyphers watched the dirt field rise up to meet him, he talked Blair through the last few seconds of the landing. Aft wheel off ten feet, he yelled over the intercom. Five, four, three, two, one. The moment that the Chinook rear wheel hit the ground, the soldiers rose as one. Some wobbled under their huge packs before bracing themselves in an awkward runner stance. They were relieved to be on the ground where they could regain some measure of control over their fates. In the air, they were nothing but a big target. Blair brought the front wheels down gently. The helicopter bounded along the ground for a few feet, then stopped. The troops were instantly on their feet, shouldering their rucks. Cyphers had raised the ramp a few degrees on as the helicopter descended, so it would not bang off the ground. Now he depressed the short lever beside the ramp to lower it again. Nielsen bellowed blunt orders from the front of the helicopter. Go, go, go. Move, move, move. Other NCOs took up the shout. 
Sergeant Scotty Mendenhall was the closest to the ramp as it began to fall. His location there was no accident. The beefy six-footer carried one of the platoon's two M240 Bravo machine guns, heavier and more lethal weapons than the saws. If the enemy was lying in the wait for the Americans as they came off the helicopter, the firepower he laid down would provide the margin between life and death for him and his buddies. Impatient to get out, Mendenhall stepped onto the ramp while it was still descending. Holding the machine gun in one hand, he ran halfway down the ramp and jumped it was just past 6.30 a.m., and the sun had not yet climbed over the mountains when his boots landed in the hard, gravelly dirt of the Shillicott Valley. I'm calling the cops right now. Hi, because I told you I wasn't leaving the park because my dog was humping your dog. Right I'm not verbally assaulting you. I told you I'm not leaving. The Attleboro Dog Park. That's inappropriate for the dog park. No, it's not. I know it's not. The dog's humping each other and she's calling the cops okay. yep. because my dog humped her dog. Every do I've seen every single dog hump another dog here. And she tells me to leave and now she's calling the cop. Like, are you serious? Yeah, they will, they'll, they'll. Yo, I can't wait. Yo, this is crazy. Cause this, you heard of barbecue, Becky? Cause this is the newest one, right here. Let me get her plate. Let's see, so everybody know who this woman is. We can look this woman up. No, you can. Three Z N nine nine six. Honestly. Honestly. I'm just trying You're not trying to, to help trying me. To tell you no, you're not trying to help are. me. I know the rules. You're not I, the, the, the dogs. Rules. I'm obeying the rules. What yeah, are you talking about? You I'm right here. You can't allow your dog aggressively on top of another the dog. The dogs hump each other every day and I took him off the I took him off. I know it's my opinion. Um as I've been listened listening here, I've been struck a couple times by the denial of humanity of many of these families and children. Um, when the issue is framed as an invasion by aliens, and when uh, we refer to children as UACs, um, it's easier to pretend they're not human or, or worthy of compassion. Uh, when you say that the cause of migration is legal loopholes or bad judicial decisions, rather than the dire conditions of violence and poverty, in these people's homes country, home countries, it's literally driving them from home. I think it's easier to slam the door against these kids and these families. Um, this hearing is a recognition and an insistence that on that humanity, um, a recognition that the Flores decision also addressed, and a recognition that just following orders is no more an excuse today than it was uh, back in Germany. Come here. To properly close out that first segment, because we went right into the violent left, um, it was an honor 
oh so long ago to be able to defend my country, and especially so close to 9-11. So I think a lot of us still cling to that because that's when it was still pure. Uh, politics had not gotten into this, that being the global war on terror. And by the time we hit midsummer of 2002, it was a total clusterfuck back in the States. They were already burning flags and shitting on them in Portland, Oregon. So that uh, intro to our violent left is a woman calling a police officer over a black dog humping her dog. That's a liberal. Uh, A dem calling a border patrol racist. Another kid attacked by a black kid over his red hat in high school. And nothing happened. Another 81-year-old Trump supporter was assaulted for wearing a mega hat. So, you know, each week there's about two, two to three that I could find. Yeah. Then we have a California professor reprimanded for saying police need to be killed. An English and comparative literature professor. And with a California Aggie also reported the tweet of UC Davis professor Joshua Clover, who's also a poet. I'm thankful for every living cop will one day be dead, some by their own hands, some by others, too many of old age. I mean, it's easier to shoot cops when their backs are turned. No? Maybe that's why even a Practical Jokers, I saw Ballish Ice, Smash DC was there, and they were just doing skits. This is last year, season seven, because season eight's coming out pretty soon. Washington Post, she knocked a mega hat off a man's head. And she's being deported. I couldn't remember if I did it last show. I think I did, but I just wanted to say again, in the Mexican restaurant, she's being deported. She's illegal. And I think that's just beautiful. A man being sought for assault, a conservative activist, has been arrested. This was the one we started about two podcasts ago. Zachary Greenberg, he's in jail. To show why we're having this violence and nobody cares and it's not that big a deal and why the lie by the left can still be conservatives are violent, is white nationalists, you know, that's why Joy Reid has a job. This week, the Washington Post finally added an editor note for Covington. Phillips, who fought in the Vietnam War, says in an interview, I started going that way, and that old guy in that hat stood in my way, and we were at an impasse. He just blocked my way and wouldn't allow me to retreat. The Post has issued an editor's note about updates to its initial coverage of January 18th incident. We've also deleted this January 19th tweet in light of later developments. He's not a Vietnam vet. The Covington kids were not the aggressor. But it's done as a correction. Nobody's going to see it. There are very few retweets of this tweet other than conservatives. But why would they when they run articles? Washington Post makes sure to note only conservatives care about leftists punching a conservative. A whole story about how the allegedly assault, even though it was on film, of the UC Berkeley incident. That's your coverage. I mean... When nobody carries it but Fox News, how are people going to know? It's really the left that's violent. They just keep getting the talking points. NYPD, MS-13, planned to attack off-duty cops. But, you know, hey, 
Fuck them cops, right? And while this is being announced, Bernie Sanders, chief of staff, guess what? She's an illegal immigrant. Yeah. That's who he hired. And he made a big deal about it. Now, if Trump was the dictator that they say he is, the next event when she walks out, ICE would be there and capture her. That's if we were living in a freaking dictatorship, that's what would happen. But it's not. This week, Twitter suspended Jacob Wool because he was about to release some more damning information showing Eon Omar is a total anti-Semite. Not just the little tweets we talk about. We're talking serious proof. But he was suspended for saying it because Twitter wants to protect her. Project Veritas, ex-Facebook employee, says firm suppresses conservative content. This is a new recording. And let me see. The spokesperson also said, now that more and more people are watching live videos, we're considering live videos as a new content type, different from normal videos, and learning how to rank them for people in the news feed. As a first step, we're making small updates to news feed so that Facebook live videos are most likely to appear higher in the news feed, except you conservative ones. Another allegation involved a post made on Facebook employee internal page discussing the content that falls near the perimeter of hate must be addressed. An engineer, Seiji Yamamoto, wrote on the page that troll behavior, which includes toxic meme creation, red-pilling normies, could be considered near hate. And in the rest of it, it's just breaking down what we already know. They only go after conservative Facebook pages. They don't go after liberal ones. They're not looking at Antifa and ISIS and all them. I mean, why, why would you look at that? It's the white people that have ours behind their name. PayPal CEO, SPLC, helps us figure out who to ban. And you're out there saying, well, why are you even, why is this in hate? Well, this is the left. This is social media. Suppressing discussion. Now they're banning people on PayPal? I hope the fuck PayPal doesn't find out what I do this podcast because I use PayPal for my you know, eBay account which I just bought my grandson I first pressing 1988 Journey's Greatest Hits. Uh, He's into Journey which I think is the coolest thing ever. I won it on a bid for 20 bucks. It's a good deal. Telemundo, SPLC, strike out in hate crime reporting. They did two this week alone, and they were wrong, and they had to retract them. So, want to keep it there. But the big fun was this week, Dr. Phil, of all people, addressed fake hate crimes and hoaxes. So, we're going to listen to a soundbite of a woman saying why she did it. Just over two years ago, it was election night. I was a 23-year-old university student. I was studying pre-law. When it was announced that Donald Trump had won the election, I was very upset. I threw back beers like crazy. I was very intoxicated. On my way home, I was planning on stopping and purchasing some drugs. I'm biracial, and the two guys that I met up with, they were very dark-skinned. The next thing I know, we had these three white boys throwing rocks at us, and there was also, like, pebbles thrown, so it was almost like a rain. Yelling the word, yelling, make America great again. Next, the guys, he started pushing us. I had bruises on the sides of my neck. 
I got hit in the chest. When I got home, I just posted it on social media. When I woke up the next day, my post went viral. I went to the police. I lied to those detectives about the location and the time that I was attacked. I ended up changing my story a couple times because I didn't want them to find out that how intoxicated I was and that I was planning on buying drugs. Because I lied, the police just didn't believe me from the get-go. These detectives had the nerve to tell me that they didn't think I was black enough to be attacked. I felt like things could not get any worse. Okay, Ellie, thank you for being here. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. You just said something that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around. You said, the police just didn't believe me because I lied. What I was saying was, I lied about the time and the place because I thought I was in a more unsavory position when the actual attack happened. So I did lie about the time and the place. But I gave them thorough descriptions of what those boys look like. They asked me for things like they wanted to see what clothes I was wearing. So I did tell them I was wearing something different than what I was. But when I asked them if they wanted the actual clothes I was wearing, they shook it off. If you lie to the police, if they say, okay, here's a girl that says, I, I was drunk, and then, and then says, well, actually, I lied about this and this and this, don't you think human nature is going to be that, that you lack credibility? I totally understood. I think what hurt the worst was they told me that the bruises on my neck weren't real, even though I was examined at the police station when I filed the report. And they told me that I put it on with makeup. Dr. Phil? Yes. I don't think it's any small detail that you lied over, about the time and the place. I mean, innocent people could have been arrested for this. Last year, we had an incident in Illinois where a five-year-old black girl said that a white man called her a racial slur. Well, the police canvassed the neighborhood and arrested a black man. The whole story was a lie that she made up with her friends. So let's also think about the victims who get falsely accused or they somehow might match a description and get arrested. That's the other part of the story that we're not talking about. Look, we, again, we know that most crimes when they are reported are true. And I, I again, I think the, prob the larger problem is when we are picking and choosing hate crimes and either believing them, not believing them, expressing outrage, not expressing outrage, depending on which side we're on and which narrative they serve, as opposed to acknowledging the reality of hate. Okay, Sally, but they, they do boil down into individual instances, and then it is on us as rational human beings to determine whether those individual incidents happened exactly the way they said they happened. If social justice trumps individual justice, individual justice no longer matters. If the narrative matters more than what happens in a specific case, then individual people are hurt. So if you care about people, you should be worried more about evidence and less about the narrative. Now, the next soundbite, I, I took offense to this because Sally Cohn was invited to go. And I don't understand that because putting Ben Shapiro and her on the same keel, at least one deals in facts. She tweeted, thanks to Dr. Phil's show for having me, but let me say here that what wasn't an edited clip, 99.7% of reported hate crimes are verified. Upwards of 97% of hate crimes are never reported. We don't know what happened to Jesse. We do know too many victims are ignored. For 2017 to 2018, understand there's only 50 documented prosecuted hate crimes. 50 out of 360 fucking million people. 50. We hear the numbers of 1,600, 1,100, blah, 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 blah. I think I quoted 10,050 for 
uh, black and 1100 for LGBT. Those are reports. The ones that actually go to prosecution that are true. Because that's the way I look at it. True. Not I'm just bust throwing somebody. Not because I want to make a scene. Not because I want to get a raise like Juicy. 50. That's over two fucking years. So you're averaging 25 real hate crimes in America. So Andy NGO, once again, is becoming one of my favorite reporters. Mrs. Cohn, you kept repeating that first figure on the show, and I didn't say anything at the time because I wanted to be kind. That number was from a vice writer who's bad at math and with flawed logic. She divided, investigated, and confirmed hate hoaxes all over reported accusations, which is where they get their numbers. You know, I'm not going to read the rest of this. You know, he replies, she replies. Let's just break it down. Every town, gun crimes, proven they counted BB guns, fired on campus, Pop-Tart guns, I mean, Jesus. Climate, global warming change, because I don't know what the fuck to call it anymore. Every statistic the left uses is bullshit. SPLC is their source. Bullshit. If you're not pro-gay, pro-reparation, and pro-open border, SPLC is going to call you a hate group. I'm a hate group. Just because of this podcast. That's probably not true. But if they've ever heard this podcast, I probably would be. The fact of the matter is, they count everything. Accusations are counted as a hate crime. So the whole thing is fucking horseshit. It's all horseshit. And they wonder why Americans, middle of the country, whites, blacks, Latina, we sit and stare at this shit and go, well, on my block we got everything represented. I don't see any hate crimes. Because as we talked about the last show, it's usually in a fucking city, but it's just accusations. And a lot of people know they can get major fucking play, become a star by saying they were harassed when it's not true. So... Here is the actual panel discussion, what I could find. Why does somebody lie about a crime like this? Well, they tend to lie because they feel victimized overall. They feel like, I am generally victimized by the system, so this event that I'm reporting, while not specifically true, is emblematic of how I am generally treated by the system, so it is not a lie. And actually, a lot of hoaxers don't even think that they what they're doing is wrong. Right. They, I mean, a lot of what Sally was saying here was really about the, the, the larger narrative, the larger story about bringing attention to hate in America and the climate of hate. So as long as we still find a silver lining or justification for hoaxes, we're going to continue to incentivize it. The problem is somebody on the other end of that hoax is held accountable and pays a price for something they didn't do. And that's the problem. You're right. Hoaxes are horrible. They should be, they're crimes, they should be prosecuted, and they will be. And the problem is, is that we don't need hoaxes to dramatize the issue of hate in this country. It's already a problem, and it is. One, One is too many, and there's suggestions that there are as many as a quarter of a million hate crimes, most of which are unreported in this country. That's the problem. And I, I hope we're all against it. Well, it's, it's fascinating to watch which trends get highlighted by the media. And the Jesse Smollett case is a good example of the, the trends that are highlighted by the media. The same night that Jesse Smollett claimed this happened, 
the same night, there was a Jewish man walking in Brooklyn who was wearing payas, which are the side locks, and the yarmulke. And he was beaten on tape. Okay, there was actual tape of this happening. Why exactly has this not received national media attention? Well, the New York Times explained in an October 2018 piece. They said the reason we have not covered this in depth is because we couldn't find a clear trend in the attackers, meaning that they couldn't find a single instance in which it had been a white supremacist. So in other words, when there's a narrative that the media wish to push, which is that there's a vast upsurge in white supremacism in the United States, the media want this to want to believe that this is because of President Trump's election, particularly even though hate crime statistics have been rising year on year, 2015, 2016. 2017, and now 2018. Because of that, what happens in New York is not of relevance. What happened to Jesse Smollett was of massive national relevance. That's, I think that's not fair. I think it's because he was a celebrity. And we pay uh, an insane and unhealthy amount of attention to celebrities in this country. But the truth is, look, this isn't the oppression Olympics, Ben. Anti-Semitic crimes are awful, and homophobic crimes are awful, and racist crimes are awful, agree, and Islamophobic I, crimes are awful, and they're all Prove it. Just prove it. There is no proof. There's accusations. The whole thing's a fucking joke. What I do know is we have total proof that a fucking Hollywood gay black man just faux-crimed. Covington was a faux thing. Everything's faux on the left. But you still have people just spinning it. Well, at least it made us talk about it. Shut the fuck up. So, let's move on to abortion. It's never-ending. It would give the politicians in this room the power to make medical decisions for women and their families. This bill intimidates providers and forces physicians to provide inappropriate medical treatment, even when it's not in the best interest of the patient or her family. Colleagues, we should treat women with respect. Decisions about women's health care aren't different from decisions about men's health care. So why are we treating women differently? This legislation, if it became law, would put doctors in an untenable position. Do they follow the law, or do they follow their code of professional ethics? Colleagues, let's get out of the business of dictating medical care for women. Let's continue to trust women and their doctors. I urge my colleagues to oppose this legislation. Mr. President, I yield the floor. People knew what they were getting with Donald Trump. He is the most imperfect human being, right? And it was, he is a vessel right now for people who are against the expansion of abortion, uh, who do want a safe There's country no with the border. There's no expansion of abortion being Oh, my discussed. God, are you kidding me? There's Seriously? no expansion being discussed. What happened in New York? What happens in Virginia? What's happening in Illinois? New York codifies Roe. You know that, Rick. All it does is it codifies Roe. And by the, and by the way, no, anything I don't, I don't beyond understand that... This. I mean, look, I, I get that it's a touchy subject. It's a, and I get that people play to it different ways. But... I don't understand to, why had, you say that it's anything more than codifying well, what's already right, been the look standard. At, look at what's going on in Virginia. Well, no, no. Let, you said New, you and, said and New York. York that's going to happen. Just because the governor of Virginia happened to New York. talk about it a different way doesn't mean it's not the same type yeah, of it legislation. It seems like a scare tactic to me. It's you know not a scare people tactic. stop me on the street and say, I didn't know that it was legal for people to kill a newborn baby? And Why are you not. telling people that? And I think what most people are saying, I can't believe that you could have an abortion up until the moment of birth. No, 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 no. Why way, do though, people believe, point, hold on, Karen, yep. why do people believe that if a newborn baby, a, bo- a baby is born, yep. that a doctor can kill it unless the laws are changed by that BS thing that Mitch McConnell put up? Why would you want people to believe that? Why wouldn't the Democrats, if, if it were true and if the Democrats felt that way, why wouldn't they just vote yes anyway? But because it was a stunt. 
You so know what? that so you what? can't it, hurt a newborn stunt. baby. Pretend but also, it's a by stunt. the way, I'm, can we just say, can we just, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Santorum. but I've talked to a number of doctors about <laughs> yeah. this. I almost called you Rick Santorum. Know, sorry, that I apologize. That point, <laughs> I love Rick. No, let at me that just... point, we're talking about surgery. If you're talking about a child that is born with, you know, the brain the, outside of the of the, its head, I just which sometimes don't, I just happens. don't get the play. That's, that's a what surgery. I know, right? Most, you know what? That's most surgery. people that's in the United States. That's not an abortion. States, so let's be honest with the American people about what we're talking about. And you can't be honest here. Yeah, but they're aghast because you've scared happening. them and you've distorted the reality. No, 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 no. No, no, no. And you just saw the new polls come out. And pro-choice voters. Of course voters, the I, look, polls I don't are going to go. People are coming up to me leaving yeah, yeah. mass and saying, hey, I don't get it. You're here at church. Why do you want to kill newborn even babies? those who are pro-choice are aghast that you could have, and most believe, but it should not be an abortion after right. three months. Okay? But here's what, but but, but I'm going to get to your question. I want to answer your question. If you have to lie to win, if you have to lie to win, I mean, we knew you had to cheat in 2016 to win. Now you have to lie to people to win. Democrats have become so radical on this that they're uncomfortable talking about it And the challenge, I'm happy to talk about it. Let's do it. all too comfortable. She's cutting me off. That's another uh, Democrat politician lying. It, it wasn't about the mother. CNN making light of it. My wife handed me something that I thought was very interesting, and I, I've never seen this. It was a meme. Why would a bacteria be considered life on Mars and a heartbeat not be considered life on Earth? That was from the March for Life this year. It was a sign. Life site news, or life news, human rights violation, Camelia Harris, you just voted for infanticide. Spare us the lecture. It is the new line. They're trying to twist off it by literally saying, oh, wait, wait, it, what about the immigrants? You're separating. Babies are dying. There was a stillborn baby. They don't care about life. They, uh, don't travel thousands of miles through a desert. Maybe you don't have stillborn babies. But you're for a live birth abortion. New York Times shock op-ed, I didn't kill my baby, tries to blur lines in born alive abortion. Uh, I'm not even reading the article. It's just more spin. Lefty outlets cover for infant side, slam GOP bill as extreme anti-choice attack. All right. The Washington Post did it. Mercury News. Huffington Post. This is all just this week. Alternate. Think progress. Um, Nate Madden recently wrote abortion played a role in Google searches in the presidential election itself as Madden's piece on tweets from President Trump who continues to not shy away from pointing out the extremist views to Democratic Party foretell abortion and now infanticide will be a focal point in 2020 promoting the pro-life message is even more necessary here's the kind of biased coverage that infanticide crowd faces think progress from Amanda Michelle Gomez Senators of Cash show votes on anti-abortion bill after a manufactured infant side. Washington Post, the latest, Democrats block Senate GOP anti-abortion. Would that be the title if it was reversed? The Hill, Democrats block abortion bill. Vox, a Republican-backed bill to protect abortion survivors just failed. It still matters. Mercury News, Politico, Senate defeats anti-abortion bill. Alternate, here's why corporate media is culpable for bolstering Trump's abortion bill. HuffPost, Trump accuses Democrats of executing babies at birth. 
Newsweek, born alive abortion bill. Trump called it executing babies, but it's actually Republican political framing. New York Times did like 35 pieces. Another, Eugene Scott from WAPO. Trump and Republicans are trying to paint Democrats as radical abortion. CBS News, Senate rejects born alive bill as anti-abortion advocates reignite late-term abortion debate. Salons, Amanda Marcotte, we've Covered her a lot. She's a feminist. Republican witch hunt. Rewires. Katie Burns. CPAC anti-choice activists. He preys on Trump. Disproving the myth of the infant born alive after abortions. Why is this so important to people? Here's your fucking president of PPFA. And she told me, we don't tell women this. If we was to proceed with the abortion and the baby was to come out still um, alive and active, most likely we will break the baby's neck. At the time of the appointment, I was 22 weeks and one day. I followed her into this really bright, very cold room. Um, and there was music playing so that you can relax and I was very nervous, I was very scared, um, and no one tell you that it's going to be okay or no one comfort you or anything like that, um, so it's just, the process is just very fast and, and very, I mean, you feel very alone, no one can come to the back with you, um, so you're just by yourself. There was two other doctors that entered the room. The woman, there was a man doctor and a woman doctor. The woman doctor introduced the man doctor to me. She told me that he was the one that was going to insert my dilators, and he was the one that was going to do the abortion the next day once I came in that morning. Um, Once they introduced themselves, they just kind of told me the procedure, um, how long the dilators would be in, They told me I'll come back um, the next day and um, the dilators will be taken out. They'll check my cervix and then they'll proceed with the abortion. Once that was done, they told me that they would be giving me a shot through my stomach and that shot will enter the baby and that's supposed to kill the fetus within 24 to 48 hours. Before that shot, I had no idea that they did that to the baby. Um, And I think knowing that the baby had to get that shot, I think that's enough to change someone's mind. So maybe they didn't um, tell me beforehand that that was going to happen. There was this really long, skinny needle that they put inside of you. Um, and one, one, the woman was holding the ultrasound to my stomach to find the baby. At the time, he was moving um, a lot. So it took them quite a while to find it. And um, the man doctor, he, was, he had the needle inside of my stomach. 
and he was trying to like catch the baby almost so um he was just jamming that needle in and out trying to find the baby and once he found the baby the baby started moving at the time um so he ended up taking it out and trying to do it again and um he didn't take it completely out but he ended up pulling it back just a little bit and going in a little deeper trying to find uh the baby again um and i guess they told me he he found the baby and he put the shot into him from what i found out later on the baby didn't get the shot they put the shot in the in the sack that the baby sits in I just told them that I want those dilators out and I'm going to go home. I'm not going to uh, go along with this abortion. I told them that I let me just get an ultrasound. If the ultrasound says that the baby's okay and his heart rate is strong, and um, then I don't want to proceed with the abortion. Soon as they gave me an ultrasound, the baby was kicking and punching in every way. The heart rate was very strong. Um, they they told me that the fetus was still, he was still alive, um, and he still looked pretty active. Um, and I told them that since he's still alive and he's still active, if you guys were to take him out right now while he's still, his heart rate is still, you know, going, what would what would you guys do? Um, she looked at him, and she looked back at me, and she was quiet just for a little bit, um, kind of wondering if the information she was going to give me was the right information that I should know. Um, and I was looking at her very puzzled, like, what what are you guys what are you guys going to do to the baby? And she told me, we don't tell women this, and a lot of women don't even ask this question, but if we was to proceed with the abortion and the baby was to come out still um, alive and active, most likely we will break the baby's neck. I've never heard of that happening before or anyone saying that that's what happened when they had an abortion um, before, so I was very confused. Um, when she gave me that information, um, he looked, the, the man doctor in the room looked at her almost like a uh-oh moment. Why would you say that? Um, I, I, from there, I, I told her that that was okay. Just take the dilators out. I want to go home. 
they were really trying to convince me that what I was doing was right by having the abortion and that I should proceed and if I go home tomorrow or the next day and there's a very strong possibility that his heart is going to stop anyway so why not go along with the abortion um, since he already got that shot and um, the more I was telling them no um, it was more like they were trying to sell me trying to sell me something um, like a seller that pushes you and pushes you until you buy their item or their product um, that's how it felt as if they were trying to sell me this abortion and trying to sell me this dream of oh this baby is not going to make it you're making a crazy crazy decision here you're making the biggest mistake by not um, completing this abortion process you already started you know why go through this and not continue um, pretty much and I told them well that's just the risk that I'm, I'm going to have to take if his heart stops then I'll proceed and do what I have to do but if not then I'm going to carry this baby and I'm going to have it um, they didn't seem very happy about that um, at all I, I made it a point that they were going to take those validators out and I was going to go home and I was going to keep this baby currently I am seven months pregnant um, 28 weeks um, I go to the hospital or, or the clinic I should say every week um, and he is doing very very good um, very healthy um, he's weighing two pounds now um, and I couldn't ask for more of a blessing than ever that what they told me about the shot and how he wasn't going to make it more than 48 hours and things like that, it wasn't true. I'm sorry, I misframed that. That's another representative of what happens at PPFA, another witness. But here, here is the rep. Lena Wynn, forcibly removing a child from their parents or guardian could cause lifelong physical and emotional harm. You see the talking points? It's like they all get together on a secret website, like back in Obama days. This is what we're going to say. Probably regulated by freaking media matters. I mean, Jesus Christ on a popsicle stick. So here's some pros. All right, and then we move on to a different subject. So you're going to hear Tim Scott talk from the floor, very moving. He's black, last time I checked, so it's just not white people that want to stop abortions. Those white men. Megan McCain decimating the view. And then you're going to go straight into our next round, which is we're going to have a fucking civil war. They're all for this civil war thing. And banning the Electoral College because Donnie Deutsch is going to run his cock trap. I recognize the senator from uh, South Carolina. Thank you, Mr. President. I ask for unanimous consent to vitiate the quorum call. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, I was necessarily absent from yesterday evening's vote on cloture on the motion to proceed to S-311, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. On vote number 27, had I been present... I would have been a yay vote on the motion to invoke closure. Let me say that a little differently. 
As I sat waiting for my plane to leave Charleston, South Carolina, to come to the nation's capital, a trip that typically takes about 63 minutes, three hours later, I had not yet arrived in Washington, D.C., on a vote that, to me, should not be a vote at all. This should be common sense, but it certainly was not common sense, so we had to have a vote on an issue that is very near and dear to my heart. I, I will say without any question, Mr. President, that uh, the frustration that I felt of uh, being late to that vote was one that was incredibly irritating and infuriating that I had planned to be on the floor of the Senate voting yes on a common sense piece of legislation, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, but was unable to make it because a one-hour flight took more than three hours, and I arrived here about four minutes after the close of the vote, which also is quite frustrating, Mr. President. But what's frustrating even more than that is that in a nation of good conscience, that we would be debating, having a conversation about a child who is born sitting there, alive, separated from her mother, and that there would be a question of whether or not that child should be able to continue to live. This is an issue that has been raised by comments coming out of New York, and more recently, comments coming out of Virginia when the governor, who happens to be, from my understanding, a pediatric surgeon, suggested that it is okay to allow that child to die. I cannot imagine whether you are pro-life as I am or pro-choice like others, that this would be even an issue of debate or discussion within the two sides. There, there is no side on this topic. There cannot be a side about life separated from the mother, whether or not that life should continue to live. This is common sense. This is human decency. This is not an issue of being pro-life or pro-choice. This is being pro-child, which we all should be. And so I find myself at a loss of words standing on the floor of the United States Senate where a vote yesterday failed by several votes, having to discuss what doesn't make sense anywhere that I have traveled. And I will tell you, Mr. President, I have recently spoke in Charleston, South Carolina, to a group during black history where the GOP and African-Americans uh, were in the same room having a great conversation about the issues that are important to our nation. We, we talked about so many of the powerful issues of economic opportunity and opportunity zones. And, and there may have been some disagreement on whether we should have higher taxes or lower taxes. But there was no disagreement on the issue of infanticide. There was no disagreement whatsoever. So whether you were left in the room or to the right, there was one thing that was in common was the the value of life. Mr. President, when I traveled to Little Rock, Arkansas this weekend to speak to another Black History event where the 
Republicans and Democrats were coming together at the governor's mansion to have a conversation about moving this nation forward, about the issue of reconciliation. We had conversations in the room about uh, the tragedies in Virginia, from the, the, the blackface tragedy to the issues with the three ranking members in the Commonwealth of Virginia. When I started talking about the truth of human life, the value and the intrinsic value of each human being, there was 100% support that we are a nation that should always value the life of a born child. There was not a single dissent in a room of nearly 400 people. And to have to have a debate on the floor of the Senate about something that every American that I've had the conversation with in airports to events all agree that there's nothing to debate. And so while I'm saddened and frustrated, I have been encouraged by my fellow Americans from Arkansas to South Carolina to Tennessee, who've all come to the same conclusion, Mr. President, and that is a child born deserves to live. We may disagree on other points, but this is a place of universal agreement from the folks I've talked to. Folks who don't vote for Republicans and the votes, folks who don't vote for Democrats, all vote for children. All vote for life. We are a nation that must continue to value life. And for some reason, somehow, this body missed that opportunity to reinforce that value system before the American public, to say to each child born, no matter your state, no matter your challenges, you have intrinsic value. Mr. Chairman, yield the floor. This new Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, like, I love that. She's already got the initials. She's that famous, and she's only been there five minutes. And she's one of the most vocal Democrats in the game right now. She's sounding the alarm about how seriously she says we need to take climate change. Watch. If we don't turn this ship around, and so it's basically like there's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult. And it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question. You know, should, is it okay to still have children? She's getting a lot of blowback for saying that. But, but don't climate scientists say that we're on the verge of doomsday? I mean, shouldn't pe people be, like, worried and scared about this, really? 
You know, I mean, to me, it's like every time there's a weather report, Al Roker should say it's going to be 20 degrees in New York and a polar cap the size of Portugal has just dropped into the East River. Yeah. I want to hear the information. Another polar bear a, a group has become extinct. This animal is gone. I think the weathermen need it because the news department... They, they feel like it's not interesting enough. It's too boring for the public. We're more interested in, you know, the excitement of the Trump administration and the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's, that is the weathermen. I think that's where it belongs. They need to tell us every day how close we're getting to total disaster in this, on this planet. Yeah. Well, I know it's something that you and I've talked about a lot. I know it's something, yeah. Joy, that you're concerned about a lot. And I remember we had a conversation even last year, and you said if you were younger, it's something that you would be thinking about very seriously. Yeah. Would you bring a child into this world um, considering climate change? And I thought, oh, my gosh, that sounds so drastic. But then if you look at the research, the birth rate in the U.S. has been falling for a decade, um, reached a new low in 2016. <laughs> And studies have examined how large a role climate change plays in people's childbearing decisions, uh, millennials in particular, and then and younger people. Mm -hmm. and, and by and large, they're saying that they worry about the quality of life their children born today will have as shorelines flood, wildfires rage, and extreme weather becomes more common. So I know that it sounds like, you know, Alexandria is being so, you know, crazy and radical. so left and radical. But the studies bear out what she's saying. Yeah. The studies it, it, bear it out. It does concern me that there's even a way to defend the question she's ask, asking. Because she's, there's a difference in caring about our climate, which mm -hmm. I would argue probably everyone in this room cares about the future of their kids and their grandkids and the air they breathe. Yeah. And, and asking a legitimate question about doing away with the human race. Last I checked, we, we elect politicians to come up with solutions, not to just do away with everybody. She's of all, saying, of all the things she said, this yeah. is by far, in my opinion, the most outrageous, the but most absurd. taking it even further than what she took it? She's asking the question. She's, well, it, I, and isn't that question legitimate? Do you know what? The, 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 the Democratic Party should it. make this their platform. They should they ask are. that question. They, it will be on good, their platform. Good luck. Good yeah. luck. Can I say what is also on their platform, which I wanted to bring up, was... Ben Sass authored the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. This act would punish any doctor who fails to provide medical care to a child born alive after an attempted abortion. Every single Democrat, except three of them, voted for this yesterday, including Cory Booker, Kristen Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. So that means these Democrats don't believe that a baby born after a botched abortion, should receive medical care. Now, this is something that started with Governor Northam. Now, this is an example when we're talking about people having children and where just how extreme the left has gone. This is an example of that. And by the way, according to a Marxist poll, 80% of Americans support abortion being limited to the first three months of pregnancy. So if Democrats want to win an election mm -hmm. going forward, <coughs> are you going to be the party of late-term abortion? The party I of infanticide. Let me finish, please. Are you going, is this the platform you're going to have? Because when you're talking about children and you're talking about being pro-life, this is well out of the mainstream of where Americans are at. And when I hear AOC saying that, I actually think Cory Booker, Kristen Gilligrand, Kamala Harris, all of these people, they are, they are answering her. I believe AOC is the leader of the party. And if you think that is how you win back the White House, I'm here to tell you, I spend a lot of time in red states. I'm from a red state. That is a losing argument. I need to push back on that. Um, only because... Thank you very much, yeah, ma'am. Yeah. I need to push back on that. On the Ben Sass, born alive abortion survivor. Yeah. I thought you yeah. were pro-life like me. I am. 
And that's why I need to push back on it because I so think. So you think a baby born at the, from okay, a botched her, abortion her, should be put down? Her, this is like a dog or a cat. This, this is Megan, why I need, to, this is why I need to push back on it. This is why I need it's to push back. It's infanticide. Because the bill that the Senate Dems blocked yesterday was to provide medical care for infants who survived failed abortions. Yes. Now, one thing is, so it's those something babies that's should so just be left to die on a table. Is she going to be able it's, to tell It's something that's so extremely rare that it basically never happens. It's not rare, in fact. Because my 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 sister-in-law is an OBGYN and also Catholic, so it's something that we talk about a lot. So even though it's rare in the times that it happened, it should so we don't need a new law for this, which is why I think a lot of the Democrats voted against it. Then why did this cause? Because so it's already required to provide medical care to Ugh. infants born alive, which is the Born Alive Infant Ugh. Protection Act. So this bill required it, that all, this bill also required that all babies born alive be immediately transferred to a hospital, which my understanding is it's not always safe for a newborn. And passing this bill would impose legal and criminal penalties on doctors who don't comply with if that. Yes, the, the doctors, doctors, even if the doctors who would not provide medical care for an aborted so child this is who part, survived, I think, that of a larger Punished. strategy to pay. Thank you. That doctor this should is, be punished. By the way, are, this are is we, also... Are we, can it would I be just nice also if second. the Republicans cared can about I, children after we, they were born. I, I just want to put a button on it in the sense that... Um, and this is a tough topic, I think. But in terms of the, the law... That the, the bill that the Senate Dems blocked yesterday, my understanding is that the reason that it was blocked is because um, the, the Dems felt that there wasn't a need for a new law because it's already required that medical care for infants born alive need be provided. And that law is the Born Alive Infants Protection Act. And under that, um, uh, under the bill that was proposed, it required that all babies born alive be immediately transferred to a hospital. And that is not always safe for a newborn. So that is one of the reasons why the Democrats also voted against the bill. And passing the bill would impose legal and criminal penalties on doctors who don't comply with moving the infant, um, even if it isn't in the best interest of the, of the, the infant. How often does something like that actually happen? And it is extremely rare that this sort of failed abortion happens. And even in the case when it happens, doctors are required to make sure that the baby receives medical but treatment. But politics... pro-life women know exactly what okay, I'm saying. Okay, we're changing gears. They know exactly what I meant. Yeah, and if that... the Democratic Party wants to be the party of infanticide... All right, we got it. Their... We got... I'll tell you what, what Cohen did say, and I, it, it's really important. Uh, this is, I think, one of the most important things. In his close, and I've said that people that know Trump will understand this, when he said Trump will not leave office in a transit, yes. in a normal, peaceful. I've said, Trump, you have to understand something. Let's, he did it in the last election. When he thought he was going to lose, he was teeing it up for a few days. I mean, it's easy to forget that now. If impeachment starts to happen, even if he loses an election, whatever in a movie you think this guy is capable of doing to create a civil war, he will, do, I know that's, I'm not speaking in hyperbole, and the fact that I didn't know Michael was going to say that, but that was kind of his kind of warning as a guy who knows him better than anybody. And I think we really have to pay attention to that. I mean, does anyone doubt that? Does anyone doubt that Donald Trump would do that even if he loses a free and fair election that he'll start talking about voter fraud? I'm not just, I'm I'm taking it to the next level. He said he won't leave in a peaceful transition. Right. That's different than saying this was unfair. Take it to that extreme. It's like they really want this. Every podcast, I'm talking about an article. Now you got Deutsch on MSDNC saying it. And then you have this. Another article on the same subject. It happens once a month since November 9th, 2016. The Electoral College is the greatest threat to our democracy. 
Washington Post. Last week it was New York Times. Here's the reason why they say that. Interesting statistics that I probably talked about after the election. There are 3,141 counties in the United States. Trump won 3,084. Clinton won 57. Yet, Clinton beat him by nearly 4 million votes. Do you see why the framers did it the way they did? You would have New York, Los Angeles. That's pretty much it. They're going to they're gonna determine those cities are going to determine who's the president. And why should it be that way? Why? I mean, if the left wasn't so extreme with everything we just talked about, then why was this? In a closed meeting, Speaker Pelosi and AOC both warned against D's voting and R's with R's on procedural votes. AOC says she'll alert progressive activists. Speaker Pelosi, this is Congress, not a day at the beach. They, she has a list, a text chain with 200 activists. She's going to start primarying her people. Now I want you to go back to Tea Party. Did I not say this was going to happen? Tea Party destroyed the Republican Party. They were disorganized for a while. And this is exactly what's happening. But you're not seeing the articles. You're just hearing how forward-facing these people are. These new people are the best. Yeah. So, after everything we talked about, Ellen Page, just last podcast, we know Jesse Smollett is a bullshit, right? We know that. Well, she was given an article this day, this week, in The Hollywood Reporter. Hate violence is not a host. Guest column, Ellen Page. While the media debate the Empire Star case, it's critical that we not lose sight on the real threats underrepresented communities face every day. On December 30th, 2018, two women joined Blah. One example. It's the fear that makes us pause before grabbing the hand of our loved one in public. It's the fear. It's this. On my gaycation, documentary. I'm not reading this because she's just a fucking hateful bigot. By the end, 29.9% of transgender female teens and 41.8% of non-binary teens said they attempted suicide. So it's your fault, not the drugs. Okay. No one deserves to be victimized because of who they are. No one should feel shame for who they are, were born, or to be, or to live their life in fear. I'm going to use my voice and visibility to continue speaking as a storyteller and member of an industry with a global platform. I employ you to join I employ you to join me in being a fucking bigot. Cause that's what they are. This very week, Biden said Mike Pence is a decent guy. Cynthia Nixon, Nixon, Joe Biden, you just called America's most anti LGBT elected leader a decent guy. Please consider how that falls on the ears of our community. He buckled. You're right, Cynthia. Nobody should dog. LGBT rights, and that includes the vice president. And he bowed. And then everybody came in and went crazy. Everybody went, they just came in and went crazy. They're bigots. And when a guy running for president backs off on a statement about the vice president of the United States, who, by the way, is a decent guy, 
Just because he doesn't believe in gay marriage doesn't mean he's a fucking bigot. To a fucking failed actress and a failed congressional candidate. You got a problem over there. And Mike Pence at CPAC pointed it out pretty well. But make no mistake about it. Freedom of religion is under attack in our country. Lately, it's actually become fashionable for media elites and Hollywood liberals to mock religious belief. My own family recently came under attack just because my wife Karen went back to teach art to children at a Christian school. Let me say before all of you, I couldn't be more proud of my wife. He's spot on. Because once again, all they care about is Islam. That's it. Once again on March 1st, Talib and Omar talked about the support and do those dog whistles against Jews. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to read replies. Ben Shapiro. I'm honestly shocked by how many media members are covering open anti-Semitism in a this-is-so-sad way. No way in hell they could cover anti-Semitism this way coming from a person who can't hide behind intersectionality. Omar's anti-Semitism is consistent, vicious, and vile. It's not sad. Stop treating this intelligence anti-Semitic person like she's an ignorant child in need of some more than sorrow than an anger chiding just to set her straight. She knows exactly what she's saying, which is why she keeps saying it. So does Talib. Democratic Representative Elliot Engel, Chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Her comments were outrageous and deeply hurtful, and I ask that she retract them, apologize, and commit to making her case on policy issues without resorting to attacks that have no place in Foreign Affairs Committee or the House of Representatives. She's vile, anti-Semitic slurs. That's his term. He's a Democrat. So in the Democratic Party, it's okay to be anti-Semitic. It's okay to dog Christianity. The only thing you can't dog is Islam. That's it. You attack Islam? Oh, no, no, no. You're going to get off the bus. Yeah. That's their world. So, just had to hit it. So, we're going to go into a music break. On the other side, we're going to go into the cone Hearing, going to make it brief. A couple sound bites. I really could give a fuck about it because I don't believe anything anybody says. As I've said a million times, they could say Trump is a unicorn. And I would go, oh, okay, whatever. Whatever. Unicorn.
This is the first unofficial hearing of the impeachment process. Whether you want to call it that or not, that's what history is going to show this at this point. And I think you've at least we've seen how this is. President Trump's allies attempting to do damage control. The first takeaway is Michael Cohen's delusional. Michael Cohen admitted today that the president never directed him to lie. The president's former attorney unleashing on him in a blockbuster seven and a half hour public hearing. Republican lawmakers pouncing on his credibility. You're a patholog pathological liar. You don't know truth from 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 falsehood, sir. I'm sorry. Now. Are you, you, know, are you referring to me, or the president? And grilling Cohen over his motives. You wanted to work in the White House. No, sir. You didn't get brought to the dance. Obviously, he came to this hearing with some baggage. He's mm -hmm. pled guilty uh, in two different jurisdictions. Was he able to overcome that? Were Democrats able to rehabilitate him, so to speak? You, now what has been uh, a four-hour-long hearing, we hear from, heard from Michael Cohen, what might be the most damaging testimony for a president since former White House counsel John Dean uh, testified against President Nixon during the Watergate hearings. Some extraordinary revelations. Michael, Maya, Michael Cohen has comported himself pretty well. He seems to be well-prepared. He's never lost his cool, and I say this as somebody who's been on the receiving end of him losing his cool. I think he did a great job of being well prepared both at accuracy, at least in what we've heard, as well as making sure he could make that point. He's been careful when somebody has gone too far in claiming what he said. He's That's corrected right. them. He's... No, 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 I didn't say That's that. Right. I said X that I thought it certainly helped, yeah, himself, it, it, helped our, me yeah. with his own credibility. And I thought he was most effective when he said something anyone can relate to, even if you judge him harshly. He said, I'm paying for this. I'm leaving my family. I'm going to prison for years. One of the heavier sentences of a cooperating witness in any of these probes in this era. And so with that on his back, he said, but now I'm here to tell the truth. And the question is, did the evidence and the truth that, as alleged, he provided, did that move people? And we did get in the middle of the night last night. I mean, just to add to the drama of everything that's going on, it's like a Tom Clancy novel. We got the testimony of Michael Cohen. Less than two years ago, Michael Cohen said that he would take a bullet for the president. Well, today, Michael Cohen will deliver a bullet right to the heart of the investigation into the president. And what a dramatic day this will be. The last time Congress heard testimony like this more than four decades ago, when President Nixon's lawyer John Dean implicated Nixon in the crimes of Watergate. Well, Cohen gave lawmakers a roadmap of exactly where to go next. He gave them the names of specific people who would have knowledge of some of this alleged criminal conduct. 
He also brought with him documents and suggested where to get more. And most importantly, he has alleged the president underestimated his net worth so as not to pay his fair share of taxes, giving Democrats a way to pursue the president's elusive tax returns. Reminders today of another historic hearing. John Dean was back on the witness stand today. In 1973, former Nixon White House legal counsel John Dean testified for days before the Senate Watergate Committee. And, and, you know, it may be that the president liked both Green Book and Driving Miss Daisy. (laughs) So that apparently Hollywood <laughs> yeah. thinks. Let's is, not start. Yeah. So right, right. Yeah. you're getting really comfortable. But I think this point. But I actually think, to, John, to your point, that this is where Cohen mistakenly fell into the trap of, right. of staying in this box of partisanship mm-hmm. because he did seem partisan in this opening statement. I, I think. So. I think he yep. really kind of crossed that line. It's one thing to say, look, I've I've had a kind of I've, I've awakened to what Trump is and everything I did and he's done and I have a problem with it to to really sound partisan. I think he went overboard on that and I think he loses. You know, he he lost a, an audience with that yeah. because he came right out of the box. I don't know whether that was Lanny Davis. Well, it seemed like. Well, it was not, but there was another interesting moment. Just putting Lanny behind him. Yes. It's going to allow every host on Fox News to say the Clintons. But there was was another moment when this tape came up, this alleged tape in an elevator of Donald Trump. Every podcast, I play a Chuck Todd soundbite about impeachment. He wants this impeachment so bad, Tim Russert would leave the grave and beat the shit out of him if he could. I mean, the guy is such a hack. Before we get into it, I just want to make sure you understand. We are real news, Mr. President. Just remember that. New York Post, CNN on Wednesday admitted it failed to disclose the Democratic Party ties of audience members who asked questions during its recent Senator Bernie Sanders town hall. That is now the third or fourth one where they've had DNC pre-picked, it's okay, town halls for Dems. Yet every time they do one for conservatives, they pick DNC Dems. Yeah, okay. I guess it's consistent. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's fucking horrible. Obsession. CNN, MSDNC spent 428 minutes on Cone, 12 on the NOCO Summit, which we'll talk briefly today. Chad Pergen, Cummings after hearing, today was a very important day. I told my staff, 200 years from now, people will be talking about it. They're not even talking about it now. But remember that, 200. The reality was, it is just kabuki theater. I'm not going to play the soundbite, but I used to have one for kabuki theater. Because I'm going to play one back to back and it just shows it. Cohn sounded like he was auditioning for CNN and Jim Jordan. He just sums it up. This was just resistance jerk porn. Given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear... That if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is why I agreed to appear before you today. In closing, I'd like to say directly to the president, we honor our veterans even in the rain. You tell the truth even when it doesn't aggrandize you. You respect the law and our incredible law enforcement agents. You don't villainize them. You don't disparage generals, gold star families, prisoners of war, and other heroes who had the courage to fight for this country. You don't attack the media and those who question what you don't like or what you don't want them to say. And you take responsibility for your own dirty deeds. 
You don't use your power of your bully pulpit to destroy the credibility of those who speak out against you. I got eight seconds. Um, what did you talk to Mr. Schiff about? I spoke to Mr. Schiff about topics that were going to be raised at the upcoming hearing. Whoa. Not just what time you show up, actually what you're going to talk about. The gentleman time to expire. So in 200 years, they're going to talk about how everything was staged? It was all for show? Chad Pergram again, Senator Feinstein, the top Democrat of the Judiciary Community on it. She's watching the Cone hearing. It's on, but I'm doing other things. I think he has credibility problems. But reporters? John Harwood. Cone to GOP committee members trying so hard to shield Trump. I'm responsible for your silliness because I did the same thing you're doing for 10 years. And many years of covering Congress. I can't remember a comeback that effective from a witness. See, they, they were all for it. Real politicians are like, yeah, this is this is bullshit. New York Times, Cone accuses Trump of lies and cover-ups. New York Post, trust me, and he's in a jail suit. I mean, seriously. Brent Hume pointed out. I, it's true. The left could didn't like it and dogged him, but it's true. Nothing he said is credible. The motherfucker is a convicted liar. And still, at the very end, everything I could have paid you for sound bites. Nothing's Russia. And then there's people talking legal scholars now. He paid for his own fucking thing. He can do whatever he wanted. The FEC rules are there so you don't fucking mismanage other people's money. It was his money. I mean, has anybody gone into what Bloomberg did with his money when he ran? Probably not. So, yeah. Cone, there it is. I'm done with it. I think it was a total fucking kabuki theater. Here's North Korea. Jesus fucking Christ. That our media was this excited for failure shows you they are pretty close to the enemy of the people. And good evening tonight from Hanoi, where we witnessed the abrupt collapse of talks today between President Trump and North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. President Trump saying, sometimes you have to walk. Tonight, his critics asking, why did he put Kim Jong-un back on the world stage, allowing him to sit across from an American president without knowing what was going to happen? Before it all fell apart, there was the dinner last night, then the meeting today. The North Korean dictator even took a question from a reporter on denuclearization, something he's never done before. But a short time later, the announcement. The working lunch was canceled, the table empty, the White House revealing no agreement. And tonight, the North Koreans just a short time ago taking on the president with their own version of what happened here. ABC's chief White House correspondent, Jonathan Carl, here in Hanoi. Just hours after the two leaders sat down, the high-stakes summit took a dark turn. With the table already set, the formal Trump-Kim lunch abruptly canceled. Reporters hastily summoned to a news conference. The president had hoped to parlay his new friendship with Kim into an historic nuclear deal. Instead, he left Vietnam with nothing, not even a joint statement. He's quite a guy and quite a character, and uh, I think our relationship is very strong. But at this time, we had some options, and at this time, we decided not to do any of the options. The president said Kim simply demanded too much, lifting all sanctions in exchange for dismantling North Korea's largest and most important nuclear facility, but not shuttering the entire nuclear program. Basically, uh, they wanted the sanctions lifted in their entirety, 
and we couldn't do that. But tonight, North Korea insists that's not true. They said they only asked for some of the sanctions to be lifted. Good morning, Jake. And what an extraordinary confluence of events here. The president here in Hanoi meeting face to face with what is arguably the most immediate threat to U.S. national security. That is North Korea's nuclear program. While at home, he faces uh, a clear and present danger, possibly to, to his presidency with Michael Cohen's testimony. It is certain that President Trump is aware of that as he is here. He was tweeting about it. His staff took the extraordinary step of, of attempting to exclude all reporters from asking any questions of him as he had dinner with the North Korean leader, only relenting in the end to allow one in. It's also certain that the North Korean leader is aware of the problems at home for this president. This is a leader seeking uh, any advantage in these negotiations. And I'll tell you this, Jake and Wolf, that, that going into this, uh, I was told by members of the president's own national security team that they were concerned about a softening of U.S. positions, U.S. demands coming into these talks, and a wider concern that the president may give up too much uh, to get a win, as it were, from these talks. And you can argue that he has a greater incentive for a win uh, w with the concerns about what Michael Cohen's going to testify to today. Well, first of all, Christiane, I think we have to point out the obvious, which is the president steered clear uh, largely during this news conference uh, of the White House press corps and was uh, instead uh, selecting uh, journalists at random uh, from the other side of the room where there were foreign journalists uh, seated. He didn't even know who he was calling on at times. He was calling on uh, reporters from Russian uh, state media, Chinese state media, uh, Sean Hannity from Fox, uh, and, and largely just uh, avoiding taking questions from the White House press corps. I think that was by design. That was because he didn't want to really answer the questions about Michael Cohen. Uh, one question out of this entire news conference about Michael Cohen was asked of the president, and as you heard there in that, in that comment you just played a few moments ago, uh, the president referring to the Michael Cohen testimony as a fake hearing, uh, and the president was also cherry-picking uh, what he liked from Michael Cohen's testimony, uh, basically saying that he was lying all the way through uh, his entire hearing, except for the part where he said uh, that the president, uh, according to the president, uh, was not guilty of any kind of a collusion with the Russians. Uh, and so it, it was a very, you know, sort of Trumpian response. You know, it was a clusterfuck. I'm not saying it wasn't. But the glee, the glee with Jim Acosta and CNN, and there are actual talks that, there's actual talks that fucking Mika laughed. They were so happy it failed. I mean, I understand it's the other party, but for fuck's sake, for fuck's sake, they were so out of hand over there because they got moved. Some of them got banned from the fucking dinner because of they were shouting questions. The whole thing with Laurie Ingram. But, but the only thing I wanted to cover in North Korea, yes, the Trump administration fucked it up. And this whole sitting in front of a, no, stop. Obama set the precedent. You guys said it was the greatest thing. You can't go back and change it now. That we should talk to everybody. Remember, that's what we were told. But they went there without a sure that they were going to get anything on paper. But anybody in the know, anybody that actually knows anything about foreign policy said the best thing he ever did, and it was a win, is to walk away. He just didn't get something. He did the right thing and walked away. But that our media, the left at whole, rooted for that to fail shows you they are the people that are broke. 
The only criticism I ever gave Obama about killing bin Laden is that he said he killed bin Laden. But I cheered for America that day. That day was a good day for America. Who gives a fuck who the president is? And that's what's wrong with the left. That extreme section's there for a reason. And hammers a point, and then we go into all these sections, and we realize they're not for America. They're for the Democratic Party. They're not for America as is. They want it to be a socialist state. They are broken. They have lost what America is. And it makes me sad that i got to play Van Jones at CPAC to prove that there are people out there who still fucking care about America. And this guy was a fucking truther. You know, and, and they may call you deplorable. But most people will call you adorable patriots. All right, just remember that. All right. (laughs) We might have a new theme from deplorable. And, but AOC, we can't take her for granted. We can't think that the American people understand what socialism is. We do have to go and educate. We have to talk about Venezuela, where 90% of the people right now are living beneath poverty, that they don't have groceries in their grocery stores, that people are eating dog food to survive. That is the path that Democrats are taking us down by promising everything, free health care, free education. What that will do will bankrupt our country, turn us into a socialist nation. It's, and it is the biggest power grab in history. AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, they're saying, give the reins to us. We want to take control of everything. We want the government to make every decision, which means they want to make the decisions. And we have to get out and educate. So everybody here, we've got to be out talking. And they try and shame us for being Republican. They try and make us afraid to speak. This is the time to be bold. We have to be out sharing our values and talking about these results, inviting people into our homes, because if we don't, they will take our nation down to a, a, down a path that we won't recognize our nation anymore. That's what's at stake. How important it is today, more than ever, to stand up for the protection of innocent life, particularly when we see the kind of threat. And by the way, it's not live birth abortion. It's not infanticide. It is murder. If you take the baby home and kill the baby at home, it's murder. It's the same thing's true at the hospital. There's plenty of material. It's a target-rich environment if you want to talk about Adam Schiff. You know, here's the interesting thing. He continues to go on over and over and over again saying that he's got all this collusion evidence. You know, what I say is, bring it on, because we know that he doesn't have anything. In fact, the one thing that we may be able to believe yesterday from Michael Cohen is the fact that he said there was no evidence of Russia collusion. I mean, you know, it's about time that we call them out for what they are. I mean, listen, Adam, you know, with this Green New Deal, they're trying to get rid of all the cows. (laughs) But I've got good news. Chick-fil-A stock will go way up because we're going to be eating more chicken, all right? I mean, so... uh... There are times for special counsels, but you know why they call them special? It shouldn't happen every time. Special should be a very unique set of circumstances. And it's turned into, like, constant. And so I I think we need to have a truce on certain things, and we need to take our political disagreements to the ballot box. I mean, let's see where the American people are. Well, I'll say a couple things. I think Clinton had a special prosecutor as well. He did. um, He's the only Democrat that got one, so, you know, it happens every once in a while. By the way, he had to do a pretty terrible thing to get that, so, you know. Well, uh, 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 we... We got 12. We don't want to go there. We got 12 minutes. We we got 12 hours. We could talk about that. Here's the deal. The conservative movement in this country, 
unfortunately, from my point of view, is now the leader on this issue of reform in that you look at Mississippi, a rock rib, totally conservative, former jailer is the governor there, Governor Bryant. Governor Bryant has cut the prison population and crime at the same time. Deal in Georgia cut the prison population and crime at the same time. Rick Perry cut the prison population, prison expenditures, and crime at the same time. Ohio, South Carolina, what you're seeing now are Republican governors being tough on the dollars, tough on crime, and shrinking prison populations and showing the rest of the country that it can be done. Now, my problem is I now have a conservative movement that for libertarian reasons, for Christian conservative reasons, and for fiscally conservative reasons, is actually doing a great job on what should be my issue. This is supposed to be my issue. You are stealing my issue. So, uh, 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 so they're welcoming you. Look, I'm gonna stay in my party. I'm gonna stay in my party. But what I wanna say, but but take some dadgum credit for being smart. Take some dadgum credit for getting it I've never seen a bird fly with only a left wing. I've never seen a bird fly with only a right wing, not even in Mississippi. We need each other. We need each other. And they want to rebuild your home. They want to take away your hamburgers. This is what Stalin dreamt about but never achieved. You are on the front lines of the war against communism coming back to America under the guise of democratic socialism, which is just a PC term for communism. I want everyone to take to heart, Donald J. Trump is never going to let it happen, and as he said to Congress, America will never be a socialist country. Then Trump spoke, I'm not going to play his stuff. In less than 90 seconds, this senior advisor, Sam, what the fuck, Vizgoy, she's a CNN contributor. What's her fucking name? Uh, Fucking Vizgoy or some fucking shit. I didn't catch her last name. Vinograd made a Hitler comparison, denied there are a massive number of illegal immigrants crossing the border, spread a bonkers conspiracy theory that the real goal of Trump's speech at CPAC was to serve Putin's interest. Somebody said, when you play the Hitler card, you've lost. But this is CNN. This is how they covered CPAC. This, whoever the fuck she is. Sam, the idea of preserving heritage taps into historically darker times, certainly... Not only that, though, you say what we heard from the president in in those remarks also could pose a national security concern. Well, Anna, his statement makes me sick. On a personal level, preserving our heritage, reclaiming our heritage, that sounds a lot like a certain leader that killed members of my family and about six million other uh, Jews 
in the 1940s. But on a national security level, the president talks about preserving our heritage as a catch-all for implementing policies that misallocate resources. He pretends that there are massive flows of illegal immigrants coming over our borders and is spending billions of dollars on a border wall emergency instead of paying attention to real national security threats. He sounds a lot like despotic leaders that have talked about white heritage and white nationalism around the world and is putting resources in the wrong place and pretending that there are foreign people trying to uh, influence our country in a way that just isn't accurate. Who does that speak to? It speaks to his base. And it also, by the way, this whole CPAC speech, how many pieces, parts of President Putin's to-do list was President Trump trying to accomplish today? He denigrated our institutions, the Department of Justice and the U.S. Congress. He spread misinformation and conspiracy theories. He undermined the credibility of several of our institutions. He sowed divisions. He sowed confusion. He was speaking to his base, but he was also saying things that really look like Vladimir Putin scripted his speech. So it helped him perhaps with his base and politically, while at the same time making Russia's job a lot easier. So we got him rooting for failure in North Korea, calling him a terrorist, saying that everything he does is just framing. Which brings us to our final little segment. Poll conducted by a new poll demonstrating the confidence in the media has hit rock bottom. Conducted with the National Poll, conducted by the Columbia Journalism Review, Reuters, and ISOP. 4,214 adults, 1,657 who identified as Democrats, 1,500 said they're Republican, the rest were independent. So it's basically a non-Republican. They said 60% believe they're paying people to say shit. And they think that 30% think the country's on the wrong path. Well, only 31% of the respondents who believe the country's heading in the right direction has confidence in the press. And 41% stated they're less than likely to believe a story that relies on anonymous sources. Regardless of age, gender, employment, or highest level of education, about half have little trust in the press. Yeah. And we wonder why. It's not Trump. It's you. I mean, it's just you. It's what you do on a daily basis. Why would we trust you? Why didn't nobody care about Cone? Why? And it's the most amazing thing. I keep hitting it over and over. I know it's some, but it's just fucking repetitive and boring, but it is unbelievable a Republican ever wins anything with our media the way they act. I mean, Chuck Todd has talked about fucking impeachment for two years worded it and everything. And that's on NBC. That's not on MSDNC. NBC. So, yeah. There we go. Anybody who's paying attention, yeah, ignore the 2020. Uh, I got a little bit in here on our hate tweets, but I just, I figure it's time to change it up. We'll hit a little news roundup and we'll just ignore it. And so let's go straight into hate tweets. Tweet of the day! The Green New Deal, getting a lot of pushback from Republicans. One of the most controversial political manifestos to emerge in quite some time. Radical, extreme Green New Deal. If the Green New Deal took hold, 
our, I think our grid would stop. There's going to be no more airplanes and we're going to stop cows from doing what they normally do. <laughs> It's not easy being green. People think you want to outlaw cows and other things. You're not allowed to own cows anymore. And people will attack your green plan because they say it's a government takeover. Or again, that weird, weird cow thing. What, are there going to be cow assassination squads now? But... The Green Deal is a good idea. And green can be cool, even if you mock it. Cows farting. Okay, enough of the cow stuff. So from one puppet to another, please give green a chance. Now if you'll excuse me, I have to go rid the earth of cows. I knew it! Veronica Klein, 45, Master of the Universe Extraordinaire. Married, no kids. Yale undergrad, Stanford MBA. She's been at Keller Hogan for 20 years. She became CEO 13 months ago. She was the first ever female CEO of a top-tier white shoe firm. Let's dig into her life, her friends, her foes. This bomb had Veronica's name on it. Let's find out why. It could be as simple as gender. Her appointment to CEO created a lot of outrage. Critics felt that the firm was trying to placate the Me Too movement, and Veronica didn't disappoint. She did her first interview saying, my primary goal was to transform the male-centric boys' club culture of Dimmick on Wall Street, which creates a lot of enemies. As do all noble objectives, right? We've confirmed that the package was sent from the Midtown Post Office. Okay, great. Pull all the video cams in the vicinity right away. Will do. Have we talked to Veronica's husband yet? Uh, Maggie no air with me. Okay. Specific threats? No. But there were definitely a lot of thinly veiled ones, specific threats. What do you mean? It's how people on Wall Street communicate. You don't perform, you're fired. You don't double my bonus, I quit. You quit, I sue. You sue, I counter-sue. So much testosterone, it's exhausting. Not an easy place for a woman to survive, let alone excel. You have no idea. Maybe you do. You see, the FBI is pretty similar. Um, Dr. Klein, are you aware of any recent arguments, confrontations? She didn't mention any. Veronica was an amazing woman. She was fearless, brilliant, but she was tough and ambitious. She didn't get to the top by accident. Most people don't. Especially if you're a woman. Uh, did she have any enemies? Were there disgruntled employees? I... I don't know. Well, thank you for your time. Is there anything else that you can think of that might be helpful? Wait. There was a guy. A, a banker. N Nick Frost. He quit about uh, six or seven months ago. He, he was very aggressive. Told Veronica he was going to ruin her life. That's very helpful. Thank you. Just find the son of a bitch who did this. We'll do our best. Um, I couldn't help but notice that when he said the FBI was like Wall Street, you smiled. The first day I reported to Quantico, my instructor asked me if I was dropping off my husband. 
Let's go find Nick Frost. Uh, ma'am, just one sec. Yeah. Um, why are we still holding this guy? Because we can. Because we might need him to answer more questions down the road. So rather than spend the time we don't have looking for him, I want to keep him right here where I know where I can find him. Mm -hmm. So with all due respect, you don't think you're taking this a little too personally? What I'm saying is, obviously, you relate very closely with victim number one. You're both determined women who rose to power in an overtly male environment. Your point? Come on, this guy personifies every privileged misogynist you've had to indulge throughout your whole career. Don't feel bad. Yeah, it makes sense. Are you seriously profiling me right now, Agent Briggs? Am I profiling you? Um, yeah. Well, let me save you the trouble. Here's who I am. The boss. Not because I'm a woman, and not because I have friends in the Senate. I have this job because I'm good. So you can stop focusing on me and start focusing on who the hell's responsible for these two murders. And the next time you introduce yourself to a female special agent in charge, shake her damn hand. For the first time in American history, news from the front lines was sent straight into living rooms across the country. And we were walking into this village when you can hear what happened. The realities of war, minus the fog. The Marines have burned this old couple's cottage because fire was coming from here. In August, as the war was escalating, Morley Safer documented Marines destroying homes in Cam Ney. 150 homes were leveled in retaliation for a burst of gunfire. Safer's report painted a new kind of picture, an ugly, uncensored one. There were 16 wounded men on the ground. And the reels kept coming. The medevacs from the jungles of Weichau to the streets of Saigon. America's first TV war dragged on. In 1968, Cronkite addressed a war-weary audience. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. Stalemate or not, it would take seven more years until Americans saw this. Reports from Saigon said thousands of people were roaming Da Nang airfield. Bruce Dunning's 1975 report on the last plane out of Da Nang as the city fell to North Vietnamese troops. A stampede of terrorized people tried to storm the plane. It was an unforgettable moment in news history. I, come on, man. Kermit the Frog, seriously. FBI, that show, Jesus Christ, it was getting so good that they went this whole toxic masculinity thing. CBS, their war coverage was top knocks. Yeah, sure. So, Ocasio-Cortez, hate I have for her, is never ending, but she's been hit with an FEC violation, which is fucking awesome. But at the same time, they're going to make her a fucking comic book. God. My favorite, though... AOC, because you knew it could be done without it. She's sitting with Sok Chabarati having dinner. Honorable J. Minor. So Caleb Hole is posting pictures of AOC out to dinner with her chief of staff having a gigantic hamburger. A close-up image of said burger. The same burger she tells you and me we're not supposed to eat. Hi, AOC. Why is your chief of staff eating a hamburger? What did I say? Limousine liberal. 
Her response, not a creepy dude took pictures. The left goes, oh, it's just creepy. It's creepy. It's stalking. No, you told Americans not to eat fucking hamburgers. You're such a meme now. Phil Kirpin. It's a rare time you see fucking politics go the other way in sports. Uh, signed past the schedule end of the world per AOC, Jeff Passan, Bryce Harper deal with the Phillies is for 13 years. Everybody's saying, well, wait a minute. How the fuck did she, he, why can you sign that, Phillies? Didn't you listen to AOC? Other AOC, GOP defensively say we're not scared of dancing women. Then they show a picture of me dancing. Nobody did that. The whole world tweeted footloose back at her. And then the Washington Journal brings it down and brings it down hard. AOC leads a generation of young people that take pride in their ignorance of law, of nature, of history, of the Constitution, of the eternal battle for freedom, and still succeed. Which it pretty much says, what is wrong with you? She, of course, attacked them mercilessly, had her mom attack them mercilessly, and it's okay for her to attack the press. Washington Post, everybody. She attacks everybody. So, yeah. Then more hate. Rolling Stones puts out Women Shaping the Future. It is Talib, Omar, AOC, and fucking Nancy Pelosi. And the whole world said, who thought this was great? And why is Pelosi draping her arm around an anti-Semite? Other hate. If you remember forever, we were told that Justin Trudeau is what we need to strive for. Beto is like Justin. We need to be like Justin. Political scandal versus Canadian Justin Trudeau. Former Justice Minister said Prime Minister's top aide repeatedly pressed her to drop the prosecution of SNC Levine. He is fucked. Fucked. And what's the worst part about it? Our fucking media isn't even covering it. They're not even covering it. If he is a fucking boy wonder, he's crooked as fuck. He's going to lose his job. I heard a fucking podcast the other day. He's done. Then there's this one that never made the media. Shahil Kapur, 2020-209. House Republicans win a motion to recommend to amend the gun bill to ensure ICE is informed when an illegal tries to buy a gun. Boom. Media never said shit, but that's what started the hate list by her. Sam Stein, CNN tells the DNC that White Wigs Newton will have no editorial decision making control over the network. So this is the eager. They hired a conservative, and CNN is now saying she's not really an editor. She's just going to be there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's fucking fantastic. Brianna Wu brings us to more gun stupidity. I just want you to hear this. I'm going to dramatically read it, but listen to the words. Okay, she's a lesbian, really butch looking, so I'm going to do it in a deep voice. I had an opportunity to fire a fully automatic M16 assault rifle today under professional instruction. It's the same weapon U.S. Armed Forces use. Experience made me feel even more strongly there's no reason for a civilian to have access to this weapon. Or one like it. For starters, growing up in the South, I took an NRA safety class as a teenager. I spent many an afternoon as a kid in a target practice, but this assault rifle is a different beast. 
It would take a minimum of 30 to 40 hours of professional instruction to learn how to operate it safely. It shoots a 5.56mm bullet. You can feel the wind of it firing three feet behind the shooter. I can't even do it without laughing. The gun is very difficult to control. I've seen these fire thousands of times in games and movies. In real life, you understand the devastating being grazed would cause. These guns belong in the hands of soldiers who have been trained. They do not belong in the hands of civilians. There is no reason someone needs to have this to defend their home. Hey, it's not like what the military has, because they don't have automatic fucking M16s. They have M4s, they find a fire three-round burst. Two, my wife got a one-hour class, if that, on how to shoot it, and she was very accurate. She knows nothing about weapons. She never started firing until I bought her a pistol, and then I handed her my rifle, and she shot and hit targets. It's not difficult to control. You have no idea what you're talking about, and it goes back to the same thing every time. You can't win the argument because you're ignorant on the argument. Yamachi. Civilians don't have access to fully automatic weapons. Checkmate, that's it. That's all I need to read. This goes on for fucking days. I could waste your time. It's bullshit. It's illegal to own an automatic fucking weapon unless you have a SOT fucking 4 license and it costs you a billion dollars and you wouldn't buy an M16, you buy a 240 or a SAW M249 or a quad 50 on a half track. Yeah, you can own that, but you're going to spend a lot of money to do it and run a rifle range where people can go out and blow rounds. Crenshaw sums up background check. And I think it's a good way to end the gun stupidity. Hey everybody, so we're going to vote on HR8. This is the universal background check bill. Okay. First, I want to help explain to everybody what universal background checks actually mean. They, what they don't mean is this. They don't mean background checks at a gun dealer. That already happens. That's already absolutely required. And we all agree with that. What they do mean is that you can no longer transfer a gun to a friend. You can no longer let your girlfriend or boyfriend uh, use your weapon if you leave and they're at home trying to defend themselves. They would be made a felon if they used that weapon. This is a pretty big overreach. And also, we have to ask ourselves, will it do any good? You know, what incentive do criminals have to actually comply with this law? Because it does need to be self-enforced. That's a big problem. The other issue is, and I talked to Houston police about this quite a bit, the, the other issue is, when we see gun violence, where do these criminals get the gun? And they answer, well, they stole them. They either stole them or they bought them on the black market. So if that's the case, and what's also the case is that all of the tragedies we've seen, whether it's Parkland or Sutherland Springs or, or the Thousand Oaks tragedy or Sandy Hook, none of those would have been prevented by HRA. So we have to ask ourselves the question, if we're going to infringe on people's liberties, what are we doing it for? If it's not going to do any good, if it's not going to actually prevent tragedies, why are we infringing on people's liberties? That's what this bill is about, and it's really important to research what universal background checks actually mean. Thanks. He's spot on. It's exactly what I already said. You're just punishing the people that are legal. You know, legal law-abiding citizens are going to pay more money. But criminals can do whatever the fuck they want. Um, trying to speed this up. I'm so over. It's because the... 30-minute intro there with the military book. Dave Atkins, the rural Republicans want to dispel the stigma that people in flyout country are ignorant rubes. Maybe they should stop sending total morons to Congress. The entire world showed a picture of AOC. Checkmate! (sighs) 
This one is my favorite subject still. Captain Marvel. This tweet reminds us of a couple things. The Alamo Draft House, only women only screening a Wonder Woman, which proceeded go, proceeds going to Planned Parenthood. And the women who carefully didn't buy an opening day ticket for Black Panther so they wouldn't be the white person sucking black joy. Yeah. In short, wokeness and comic book movies don't really go well together, but now Marvel's getting ready to release Captain Marvel, starring Brie Larson, who wasn't about to let the press tour for the movie overwhelmingly white, and men have already been warned that they're fucking hot takes about Captain Marvel, not welcome, and you're all a bunch of fucking sexists. So here's another one. Captain Mabel. Dear white men haters, you're not welcome at cinema for Captain Marvel. This movie takes stand against everything you represent. Don't pollute the audience with your toxicity. I stand in solidarity with every woman who has ever faced abuse. And she had a fucking unicorn emoji. Yeah. yeah. Problem is, everybody's going to the other movie that just broke out. I can't remember the fucking name, that little robot chick. So it's pretty much fucking, fucking over that movie. And I think it's fucking perfect. So our tweets of the day, keep Korea divided, Jeff Zucker, CNN. There are hit job billboards going all over the place by some conservative group showing CNN for what they are. I'm just going to read the title because we're short on time. Actress Jennifer Lawrence announces she has a plan to save America. I'm going to cover it in depth next podcast in our news and social media nuggets. Then we have sound bites. All right. There's a reason why our media is not taken seriously. Did I lose it? I think I lost it. Damn it all the hell. Nope, I got it. This is Snuffburger. Yeah, he's not biased. It'll take us to our last music break and news, social, media, nuggets. And when your job is to inform the public on news that is constantly changing. You know, making sure we are always accurate, especially with these attacks coming in on the press. We have to make sure to go above and beyond uh, to ensure that everything we do is accurate and fair. Oh, make me over. Get my face. My name is Mighty Beyond. 
poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct. And it's not just politics, it's everything. It's what you eat, it's what you wear, and it's what you say. If you don't watch yourself, you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance, we have right see two. these girls? Yep. No, you don't. Those are women. You call them girls, and they'll pop your figs. Save the whales. Gays in the military now. Military corner. I love this tweet. The war axe. I am the war axe. I got blown up in Afghanistan. You know what one of the things I had trouble with afterwards because of the traumatic brain injury and PTSD from seeing Marines I trained with and loved nearly killed? This isn't an either-or issue, and your hot take sucks. Boomer, major demotable. Anyway, who wants to spend a small amount of money to help trans soldiers when there are man babies in the DOD who can't get their fucking dicks hard? DOD spends $84.5 million a year on Viagra. Hmm. Clearly obvious. Uh, not a soldier. Doesn't realize. A lot of people had problems with that. So, yeah. Army plans to cut $31.5 billion in coming budget. Going to stay on top of this one. I don't know what they're cutting. Hero SOS, SOS, SAS dog saves the life of six elite soldiers in Syria by whipping out jihadi's throat while taking down three terrorists. The dog had been out on a patrol in northern Syria. As the soldiers left their armored convoy, they were hit with a frenzied ambush. A source said the unnamed Belgian Malmois took out three jihadis on his own. The SAS commander said that he saved our lives. That dog deserves good dog food. And to go get him some pussy. That's a badass dog. One of these planes will be the Air Force new light attack aircraft. I'm covering it all the time, but now it's been finalized. Textron Scorpion, it's a jet. Hawker Beechcraft AT6 Wolverine and the Sierra Nevada A29 trailer. Or A29, I'm sorry. Uh, the Air Tractor AT802U is a possible. Every article I've gotten, it's the Scorpion, the Beechcraft Wolverine, and the Sierra Nevada trainer. Um, the air tractor, I've not seen anything, and they said they're cutting down to three, so um, I'm going to go with the top three. That's pretty cool. Um, just, you know, watched uh, a movie with a, a, a Bat 21 the other day, and I thought about, you know, we could have used that, and it's easier than a helicopter because it can refuel, blah, 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 blah. This ISIS fighter made a technical out of a shopping cart. This picture it was all over the net, and it just cra- just cracks me the fuck up it just cracks me up he put a fucking 51 dish gun on a goddamn shopping cart the army refutes microsoft employees charge that new awareness tool is for killing it's not it's for fucking training but you fucking wahoos freak out about everything 
And for that, I fucking hate you. To our college crazy. I know I'm talking a little faster today. I'm trying to get these podcasts under three hours. And it just every time I run into problems, I've even edited down sound bites to try to take out the bullshit. But there's just, it's just so much shit. In like four or five day period, there's so much shit. I want it to be kind of a dump. That if you, you can't keep up with the news, you're not on Twitter every day, here's the crazy. And here's some crazy. UW-Madison compare migrant crisis to Nazi Germany. Not reading it. What is the fucking problem with the left and Nazi? Everything's a Nazi except the Nazis in your party that are anti-Semites. Isn't that weird? It's that projection again. Syracuse, tight-lipped on whether students can still intern for anti-Israel group. There's a video. They wouldn't answer the question. UMN offers relevance of Marxism course, and that's why AOC is popular. American University pumped dozens of millions into diversity. They've now spent $61 million, and they're still not diverse enough. Does that make you think? I have a soundbite of the non-trans female who lost to those two boys. I'm not going to play it. But it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. This didn't get airtime. When you literally saw this, you didn't get airtime for the person that's saying, hey, this isn't fair. And it doesn't seem very feminist. But it seems like it's spreading. Transgender athletes to be, to be allowed to compete as the other sex in Olympics without gender reassignment surgery. The International Olympic Committee received proposal guidelines at its consensus meeting on sex reassignment hybrid hyperandrogenism. The policy change would allow transgender athletes to compete without having gender reassignment surgery. It would allow transgender athletes to compete after one year of hormone replacement therapy and no surgery is required. The change would be in line with the NCAA standards of the United States. So they all have to go on the hormones. Why did I read that? A, it's fucking crazy. What the fuck is wrong with the world? But B, that's the Olympics. So why isn't high school sports that way? Oh, I know why. USA Today, Brennan. Boys who won't wrestle girls need to join the 21st century. He took the wrestling avenue where boys are refusing to wrestle a fucking girl. Who are boys, but they're girls. You follow me? It's not about right or wrong, biology, it's about our agenda. And the LGBT mafia, oh, they gonna get what they want. Lena Dunham, I should have put this in Tweets of the Day, but I put it down here because she's such a fucking freak. Post lingerie photos to celebrate weighing the most I ever have. I spent a lot of time in my life feeling like too much, too hungry, too anxious, too loud, too needy, too sick, too dramatic, too honest, too sexy. I was always sent the message in an insidious way that I took up too much room and demanded too much of my life and sometimes gave too much to people who didn't want any of it. So here's my nasty body. And I can say that because I don't post pictures of my fatness online. Nobody wants to see that. But don't you notice? She's another victim of her own politics. When was the last time you saw Lena Dunham? She was the it girl. Now you don't see it anywhere. And then you have this crazy shit. I think it was sent to me by Zach in Tennessee. Sex coach smears menstrual blood on her face to show that periods are beautiful 
and powerful. Demetra Nix, 26, regularly posts selfies on her Instagram, covered in her blood, on her face, in her titties. I'm not reading anything else. Jareth Nebula, we covered him before. Ex-transgender man now wants to live as a sexless alien. And he removed his nipples. You do you, sexless alien. I don't give a fuck. You can go be that. I say it all the time. You want to be a goat? Be a fucking goat. But don't expect me to say, oh, we all need to respect sexless, sexless aliens. Not happening. Uh, U.S. Department of Health. This is a actual news, a nature news and comment. The history of sex difference research is rife with innumerable misinterpretation, publication bias, weak statistical power, inadequate controls, and worse. The new piece titled "Neurosexism: The Myth That Men and Women Have Different Brains." B. Jordan B. Peterson. Nature goes farther down the social construct rabbit hole opinion and what was the world's premier science journal. And that's the scary thing. They have pushed so far that scientists are now ignoring science. That's just fucking crazy. Latest crazy thing. Translation site lasts for shocking racist explanations. It was some high-speed thing overseas, and it was just racist as fuck. Getting into our crazy crime shit. Teacher Brittany Zamora had sex with boys in the classroom while other kids watched. What the fuck? Then there's this crazy shit from the millennial class. Cheesing your kids. They throw cheese in their fucking kid's face. Who the fuck does that? Why would you throw fucking cheese in your kid's face? Why? To show you global warming, climate change, whatever the fuck, cooling. For the first time ever in February, L.A. never hit 70 degrees. So I guess, you know, maybe it's not getting harder. Humans could get X-Men supervision. They have a new type contact thing with nanoparticles that could give you basically infrared eyes. I'd pay for that contact. A cool thing, because I just, like I said, bought my grandson a original press. U.S. music fans throw more money on vinyl CDs than iTunes downloads. Streaming is king, though, bringing 75% of U.S. recording industry revenue. How the mighty have fallen. Digital downloads typified by 99-cent iTunes tracks that ruled the music industry as recently as four years ago now make less money for U.S. labels than CDs and vinyl records. Yeah. People are going back to vinyl. And that's fucking awesome. And last but not least, or you know I love my space news. I just fucking love it. Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night. NASA's Juno spacecraft has sent back some lovely new photos of Jupiter that give us all the post-impressionist feel. If you haven't seen these, Google it, man. It is so beautiful. To our lighter fair. Gonna play one of our old, old skits that we did back in the day. 
Uh, I haven't done one in so long, but I figured it'd be kind of fun to bring some of the old stuff up when I'll grab the military system. Uh, the military one. Um, it seemed like a good idea. This was one of my favorites. It ended up being a punchline for Trump later, and it wasn't like I invented it. I mean, everybody was saying it, but here's my uh, take on CNN and Russian dressing. <laughs> Enjoy. This is Jake Tapper, and welcome to State of the Union. CNN has obtained new information from high-level anonymous sources that there is more evidence showing the collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, which allowed him to beat our candidate, the only true candidate, the only candidate that an American can make, Madam Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Praise be her name, praise be her pantsuits, praise be her cackle. (laughs) High-level sources with the CIA, FBI, DIA, NSC, Keith Oberman, Bill Maher, Michael Moore, and more importantly, Meryl Streep have all verified this information, and we have high confidence that this will verify what Democrats have been speaking on since November 8th. That is, a Watergate, Iran-Contra, Lewinsky-Gate, and earth-shattering information that will bring Donald Trump, hashtag resist, administration to his knees, and make anyone with any loyalty and patriotism to this country, anyone who loves puppies, babies, kitties, and oxygen itself to stop supporting him and demand nothing less than his resignation, but hopefully impeachment so he can begin to work on taking Vice President Pence down with his anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ cosinophore background, and even worse, in Jesus as his savior, which is seriously a character flaw. This source has delivered to us what we have been searching for since the election didn't go our way. For this information, we go to our Washington correspondent, Jim Acosta, who has been insulted and made fun of by that meanie President Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, and now has to go to his safe space to report for his feelings were deeply hurt when he didn't get to go to one press spray. Out of character for a second. That sounds super homoerotic and should be nothing anyone ever would want to go to, by the way. So here is Jim Acosta in his safe space in an undetermined location, but surrounded by the very puppies and kitties that the Trump care plan will kill if signed. And he has this piece of the puzzle we have struggled for three months to find. Yes, Jake. This information, once again, high-level anonymous sources have confirmed exclusively to CNN that during the campaign, no less than three, three times, Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, 
used Russian dressing on his salad. That's right, Jake. He used Russian dressing on his salad. And not the kind made by Kraft or a generic one you can get at Piggly Wiggly. This was Russian dressing made in Russia that was imported especially for Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, and the Trump campaign, hashtag resist. And it was made out of the 30,000 emails that Hillary Clinton deleted, which as you know, Jake, Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, said during the campaign he hoped the Russians would give him those emails, and they did in this imported bottle of Russian dressing. This is the smoking gun in this low point for America, and now this reporter believes the only action Republicans can do is to start impeachment proceedings. Jim Acosta in his safe space surrounded by puppies and kitties. Thanks, Jim. For the visually impaired, the Chiron on CNN now reads, Trump used Russian dressing made from Hillary Clinton's deleted emails. Hashtag resist. So to our panel with this new information that Donald Trump used Hillary Clinton's deleted email, Russian dressing, how does this affect his ability to govern as a president, Van Jones? I um, I am shocked by this news. I I think we have to ask the question, what do we tell our children in the morning? I mean, people are scared out there. I have friends that are allergic to Russian dressing and especially dressing made out of Hillary Clinton's deleted emails. But let's just speak on the elephant in the room. This was a reddish orange wash. This was a racist president who is eating reddish orange dressing and that sends a powerful signal to African Americans. Dana Bash. I am speechless, really. I mean, it is definitive proof that this election was hijacked. My sources on the Hill are saying that the GOP is talking about the DNC hijacking the election from Bernie Sanders, but we have not verified any of that, so I really can't speak on that, but it is just spin, spin, spin. David Axelrod? As a hack from the Obama administration who spinned my president to an eight-year presidency that is scandal-free in the media's eyes, I mean, really on the eve of an election, I pushed that sorry YouTube video bullshit, and you guys bought that and protected the president. I mean, that really was my greatest hour. (laughs) But seriously, I can only say that Trump administration is over now. Russian dressing is a proof that we were looking for, and it's time for the GOP to be like we were the DNC that is with Bill Clinton and convict him of high crimes and misdemeanors uh, David the to keep the facts straight the Democrats didn't convict him of high crimes and misdemeanor they stopped that in the Senate well um, what I mean is the GOP is only one political option on this and that is to impeach if not they will suffer a landslide defeat in the midterms if This in itself doesn't devastate them, and the Democrats really are poised to take back power in every office in the land due to this Russian dressing discovery. To our only conservative on the panel, 
But another Trumper who you have never heard of, John Doe. John Doe, in, in my opinion, which you don't care about at all, um, I, I, I truly think, um, I want to state for the record, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a Trump supporter. Hashtag resist. So I, I do not get attacked. I don't want to get attacked on Twitter, okay? I, I, I have my family's lives threatened, and it, it's been really bad because I, I'm the only one on this channel that's actually not uh, part of the resistance, and, and it's been really hard. But, but I can only say this is why we said he should not be the candidate. This is why we wanted Ted Cruz, you know, someone you all hated just as much, but Ted Cruz doesn't eat Russian dressing. That's didn't collude to rig this election and take it away from its rightful owner that you've all told me is the rightful owner. Madam Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, you know, uh, blessed be her name, blessed be her pantsuits. Van Jones, I totally disagree with you on this one just because I have to, for your evil and are guilty by association for being a Republican. David Axelrod, I am sure that reads good on paper, but politically you should not have said Ted Cruz. Well, Ted Cruz is a Christian, and the American people by a huge percentage are not Christians. So that statement is not going to get you and your family any safety at all. When we come back, we will speak to a Russian dressing maker from Kraft Foods to see how the Russians could have made this dressing out of the 30,000 deleted emails when those emails are just a figment of the GOP's imagination. And we never really even researched it. So we don't think it was ever, ever deleted. None of them were ever deleted at all. It's just a ruse by the GOP to take away the presidency from the real president, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Praise be her name. Praise be her pantsuit. Praise be her cackle. <laughs> Now to modern day, and it's brought to us by the Lawrence Police Repar- Department from Lawrence, Kansas, and they tweeted Dumb and Dumber picture to start it off. The remote, most ridiculous call of 2019 so far. A thread. Ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and enjoy this epic tale. So two officers get sent to a road rage of progress last night. Two unfortunate souls are dispatched to handle it. Keep in mind, this is a time they will never get back. Upon arrival, the first officer finds two cars in the parking lot. We'll call the drivers Karen and Chad. The cars are facing each other in close proximity. So Karen wants out of the parking lot. Chad wants in. Both of them are refusing to get out of the other's way. Literally, all they had to do is back up. Nay, all one of them has to do is back up, and the other can go on. By the time we arrive, the great parking lot stand-up of 2019 has been going on for 20 minutes. Chad says, I got nowhere to go. I can just stay here all night. But why, Chad? Why don't you just move? Apparently because this is a principal issue and because 2019. Okay, so let's try Karen. Maybe Karen could be reasonable. Karen, could you please just back up so Chad can go? Nope, I'm not moving. He can move. Karen claims she can't back up because her vehicle is too large and she will literally crash it. Karen is driving a mini, mini van. Mini is emphasized because the van is not particularly large. And if Karen can't back it up, maybe Karen should refrain from driving it. Remember, this is the cops. So a sergeant shows up to get more information on the road range of progress call. And as soon as he finds out what the issue is, nope, out of there like the day old donuts. Just got 
set out at the gas station. Okay, listen, Chad. This is really a massive waste of our time. Can you just move? Nope. I didn't call you guys. She did. I'll be sitting here all night if I have to. Karen, so how about you move your car now and we can move on with our night? Why won't you just make him move? The police suck. First of all, Karen, we don't have the legal authority to make either one of you move. This is a private property. Second of all, grow up. Third of all, we're leaving. Have a good night. As far as we know, Chad and Karen are still sitting there. And so concludes the story of the most ridiculous call of 2019 so far. My suggestion is to follow this because seriously, folks, there is some funny shit on this Twitter. So it's Lawrence, Kansas. Just look it up. Jesus. Which brings us to our ugliest soundbite of the day. We call this This is America 2019. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing liberal agenda stories. And this is America in 2019. I got the strap. Just to make a note, Mr. Chairman, just because someone has a person of color, a black person working for them, does not mean they aren't racist. And it is insensitive that some would even say it's the fact that someone would actually use a prop, a black woman, in this chamber, in this committee, is alone racist in itself. Donald Trump is setting Mr. A Chairman, I ask I, that her words Donald be Trump taken down. President, I reclaim my time. Mr. Donald Chairman, Trump is setting a president. Mr. Chairman, the highest office can be Mr. Chairman, the rules are clear. Activity, cover up and hold on to business assets to break campaign finance laws and constitutional clauses. What we have here, Mr. Chairman, is criminal conduct and the pursuit of the highest public office by Mr. Cohen and individual one. I hope that the gravity of this situation hits everyone in this body the court and in Congress and across this country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield the rest of my time. Mr. Chairman, I ask that her words, when she's referring to an individual member of this body, be taken down and stricken from the record. I'm sure she didn't intend to do this, but if anyone knows my record as it relates, it should be you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman, I, I, I would like to... Hold on. I want the words read no, no, back. No, 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 no. We want to know exactly no, what she said me. about a colleague. Excuse me. Would you like to rephrase that statement, Ms. Talib? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I can actually read it from here. Just to make a note, Mr. Chairman, that just because someone has a person of color, a black person working for them, does not mean they are racist. And it is insensitive that someone would even say racist, say, say it is racist in itself, and to use a black woman as a prop to, mo- to prove it otherwise. And I can submit this for the record. If a colleague is thinking that that's what I'm saying, I'm just saying that's what I believe to have happened. And if, as a person of color in this committee, that's how I felt at that moment, and I wanted to express that. But I am not calling the gentleman, um, Mr. Meadows, a racist for doing so. I'm saying 
that in itself it is a racist act. Well, I hope not, Mr. Chairman, because I need to be clear on this well, particular. Mr. Chairman. Mr. 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 Meadows, wait a minute. I, I've defended you no, at, no, uh, no, about, Mr. Meadows, uh, with false accusations. Mr. Meadows. I'm the chair. Yes, sir, you are. Thank you. Right. I will clear this up. Democratic Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence is just not having it. I just want to put on the record as being a black American and having endured the public comments of racism from the sitting president as being a black person, I can only imagine what's being said in private. And to prop up one member of our entire race of black people and say that that nullifies that is totally insulting and in 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 this environment of expecting a president to be inclusive and to look at his administration speaks volume congresswoman brenda lawrence thank you for that you were challenged oh, you were okay. saying what a lot of people of color at home were saying you were angry you were frustrated about what Representative Meadows, how he used Lynn Patton as a prop. Explain to us, talk to us, explain to our viewers what a lot of people of color saw happen there. I was sitting there, first of all, I'm a member of Congress. I have sat through hundreds of hearings, watched hearings. I've never seen a human being being brought out as a prop for an issue you're trying to make. And then to bring out this one woman who, I don't know where they found her because she's not in his executive team. I've never seen her. I'm sure she's a good person. But to bring her out, and I'm sitting there knowing what we have gone through in America with Donald Trump as our president. You know, to hear the comments he made before he was president about Barack Obama. I mean, openly and with such authority and pride, he says racist things all the time. And you insult me by bringing one single woman up. And when you look at the Trump administration, it is not one that reflects the diversity of this great country. Mm. And why would you do that? Mm. And I sat there, you know, it wasn't my turn right after Meadows. And it just kept building up and building up. And, and I could not not address that. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. She um, does work for HUD. She's close to the family. So I'm sure, as you said, she's a good person and a friend. But this action was, um, I think, just not a good move. Okay. It was insensitive. And so back to that point yesterday, which is that, as you point out, there were people at home that felt that that was tone deaf and insensitive of Congressman Mark Meadows. You certainly were not alone in that feeling. And so why did you feel the need to apologize to him? You know, I just want folks to know this is probably the most diverse class. This is the largest incoming class since Watergate. And yeah, we look differently. And many of us didn't run to be first of anything. But I think we ran because we wanted Congress to not only look differently, but also speak differently and feel differently. And for me, again, as a person in the member of that committee, I did not feel... Uh, that I should be silent about the fact that how that made me feel as an as a equal member to Mr. Meadows and many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. 
uh, at that moment, it was important for me to speak truth to power. It was important for me to speak out against that action that I thought was very hurtful and very painful for many of us sitting in that committee room. And so do you regret apologizing to Congressman Meadows? Well, no, I apologize if it made him feel like I was calling him a racist. I was asked, I was at that moment, you know, as a person, as a mother, this was a teachable moment. Uh, for me, I used that moment to say, just FYI, that was not the way to do it. Uh, and it was not at all calling Mr. Meadows a racist. I really, if I wanted to, everybody knows this, I'm pretty direct. I would have done that, but I, that's not what was my intention. It was my intention to, to educate, to share what I was feeling at that moment, just like when he was feeling at that moment of what um, uh, his reaction was to the comments from Mr. Cohen. Uh, I, I'm really, you know, wanting you to focus to uh, discuss race in this country in a way that can be really thoughtful and constructive, not in a way that's very dramatic and, and, and again, no disrespect to her, but just to having her stand there saying nothing and saying, look, he's not a racist. I, again, I was still taken aback and still to this day, it was like, that was not the way to do it. Do you regret saying what you said yesterday in the in the hearing, or do you stand by what you said yesterday in the hearing? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I really do stand by it. And, and folks need to know, you know, I come from uh, a community is, that I was raised in, which is the most beautiful, blackest city in the country. And uh, fully around us in, in what's happening, I think, in the country right now at the, with this sitting president of the United States, uh, very much I wanted to be heard. I wanted to be seen. Uh, and for me, at that moment, watch. Uh, this young woman stand up behind uh, Congressman Meadows in that way uh, was very hurtful and, and it was very dis disrespectful. Um, did you, what is the big... Democratic Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence is just not having it. I just want to put on the record as being a black American and having endured the public comments of racism from the sitting president as being a black person, I can only imagine what's being said in private. And to prop up one member of our entire race of black people and say that that nullifies that is totally insulting. And in, in, in this environment of expecting a president to be inclusive, and to look at his administration speaks volume. Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, thank you for that. You were challenged. Oh, you were okay. saying what a lot of people of color at home were saying. You were angry. You were frustrated about what Representative Meadows, how he used Lynn Patton as a prop. Explain to us. Talk to us. Explain to our viewers what a lot of people of color saw happen there. I was sitting there, first of all, I'm a member of Congress. I have sat through hundreds of hearings, watched hearings. I've never seen a human being being brought out as a prop for an issue you're trying to make. And then to bring out this one woman who, I don't know where they found her because she's not in his executive team. I've never seen her. I'm sure she's a good person. But to bring her out, and I'm sitting there knowing what we have gone through in America with Donald Trump as our president. You know, to hear the comments he made before he was president about Barack Obama. I mean, openly and with such authority, 
and pride. He says racist things all the time. And you insult me by bringing one single woman up. And when you look at the Trump administration, it is not one that reflects the diversity of this great country. Mm. And why would you do that? Mm. And I sat there, you know, it wasn't my turn right after Meadows. And it just kept building up and building up. And, and I could not, not address that. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. She um, does work for HUD. She's close to the family. So I'm sure, as you said, she's a good person and a friend. But this action was, um, I think, just not a good move. Okay? It was insensitive. Mark Meadows goes out of his way to preemptively rebut something that was in the opening testimony about the president calling black voters too stupid to vote for him. And as a means of rebutting that, has Lynn Patton silently stand up on an auction block and say, look at my black friend. Look at her. That means that the president isn't racist. Was the epitome of racism. Are you serious? Is she the black ambassador for the entire race? Because one person out of his entire cabinet, out of his entire staff, is there as a the black person that this is who you bring up? The fact that he thought that that was going to be like a gotcha moment is incredible to me. It incredible. Would, it, yeah. It would. Well. Two things, Willie. First of all, it's important to put Mark Meadows into context. He's the man that said, and there's video for this, that we're going to send Barack Obama back to Kenya. That's what he said in 2012. So let's just frame it right there. So for him to try to say he's not a racist or has racial insensitivity is ridiculous on its face. Secondly, as a black woman and as a Republican mm -hmm. woman my entire life who served on that very committee that we watched on TV mm -hmm. yesterday as the first black person ever to work on that committee on the GOP side, I was horrified and appalled at my party for mm -hmm. not participating in, in their constitutional duty to ask questions. And secondly, to bring a black woman out, shame on Lynn, first yeah. of all, for agreeing to do it, but to bring a black woman out and have her stand there like she was on the auction block. Thank you. And she couldn't talk. She couldn't speak. You couldn't swear her in. And there's this visual exhibit a American people. There's a black person here and we have a black person who can't tell you what she thinks will tell you how she feels. And that'll prove that Donald Trump's not a racist is the most ridiculous, ludicrous thing I've seen the Republican Party do in a really long time. And that's saying a lot. That is to leave at an official hearing calling somebody racist because he played the game that you people came up with. What, well, do you have any black friends? So now people say they have black friends. Every representative on the left doubled down, said it was the greatest thing. CNN jerked off all day long and didn't care. And they were actually applauded for calling a good guy a racist. In the end, all she did is make Representative Cummings side with a Republican. And then lie and say she wasn't calling him a racist, she's calling Trump racist, and then going on TV and saying, no, he's a racist. In line with this, Senator Jeff Merkley, a president and a dictator met in Hanoi. One has demanded unquestioned loyalty, bragged about his nuclear arsenal, attacked the press, and employed family members as his advisor. The other is Kim Jong-un. That's a Democrat. Another article. In America, talk turns to something unspoken. 
Civil War. Again, another article from a different source. You know, it used to be a time in America where our representatives and our media act better than the base. And the base being the far left, the one that the left scared of, and the far right that the right is scared of. They're the ones that can cause you trouble when you try to go for re-election. We don't have that anymore. Our representatives act like the Antifa on the left. And our representatives on the right act like resistance members because they don't want to be with Trump. Why do I care? I don't care about Trump. I do care that someday maybe we have a third party so we can get out of this stupidity and move forward as a nation. But we can't do that when one party calls everybody a racist and they're the racist. Projects that everybody's a piece of shit and doesn't care about colors but then projects that it's actually Trump doing it as we started this show. And then a Islamist an anti-Semite can go into our highest offices of power and call everybody a racist and our media side with her. That was fucking embarrassing as an American. There's a recall election that's up to 200,000 people for her. It won't happen because she's a woman and a Muslim. And that's what this all comes down to. The left has won with their identity politics. You can be gay, you can be black, you can be Asian, you can be Hispanic, you can do horrible things. Our media won't touch you because they're fucking scared. I didn't even cover how Camelia Harris has been proven to own slaves. Her family did. Totally lie about a record. Even CNN's called her on it. But she'll run for president. On the other side, we have the media and the left digging through transactions going back to the 90s to try to impeach a president who hasn't done anything except get elected, and they didn't like that. So unlike the media who says this is America every time some SJW thing happens, on my show, This is America... This is embarrassing when an elected official can act like that, get lauded for it, every representative backs her, she'll suffer nothing, but a guy said something about white nationalists and is removed from committees and he will not get reelected. Steve King will not get reelected. That goes back to Trent Lott. We have one political party that has to fucking really do things when people do wrong and are unprofessional. And we have another party that the media goes, you're on our team, we're going to let you do whatever you want. And VA this week, the governor's still the governor. The assistant governor's still a sexist. The AG is still a racist. And the wife of the governor handed out cotton to kids. This is what slaves used to do. The media, by the end of the week, and that's why I didn't play it, were protecting it that, oh, we overreacted. A Republican congressman, a Republican governor, 
a fucking Republican dog catcher, that in half of that would be out of a job. And if we end up on a civil war, it's not going to be you starting it, progressives. It's going to be normal people taking to the street. You're going to sick on your fucking Antifa people, and shots will be fired. Unlike you, I hope that never comes to the day. I hope we don't go back to the 60s and riot. You can goddamn guarantee at the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention, there'll be riots. And it'll be the left. The media won't cover it. But eventually real people are going to take to the streets. They're going to be sick of this shit. They're going to take a day off from work and grab their poster boards. This shit's going to get out of control. And I blame one thing, the media. The media stirs it up and they add sugar on top, trying to get Americans to be divided so they can have good ratings. So they bring bring pieces of trash like Talib on to call a person a racist For what? He did what you tell us to do. I have black friends. That's your fault. We all say that. Every white person, Democrat, progressive, it doesn't matter who the fuck you are. You're forced to say shit like that. If you don't say it, you're a racist. And then if you say it, you're a racist. This is your game. Your game. Not ours. I treat everybody the same. I don't give a fuck what you are. If you're an asshole, you get treated like shit. And right now, Tlaib, Omar, AOC, Pelosi, and CNN are fucking assholes. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send a comment about this track by sending an email to foppodcast at gmail.com. Foppodcast, gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Attic, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out our Facebook page at F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T and our Twitter page at Fop Tony Reed. Our next podcast will be B-B-B the 8th of February, Year of Our Lord 2019. Till then, remember to disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. Enjoy the ride because it goes really quick. We started this show with something that was recorded three years ago, which seems like yesterday, for a battle that took place 17 years ago. I was still in that valley right now until the 13th of March. And it was yesterday, but it was 17 years ago. So don't live with regrets, folks. It goes too fast. As always, I thank you all for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.